Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to a very special episode of this podcast. Uh, no, your phone isn't lying to you. This is two and a half hours long, but I'm going to tell you why in a moment. Gordon McDonald is back. And this episode is brought to you by Promedia Fire. Book your free digital strategy session at promediafire.com forward slash church growth and by Red Letter Challenge. Red Letter Challenge is back and you can get 10 to 40% off your 40-day study that dives into the words of Jesus, practical challenges for everyone in your church, go to redletterchallenge.com forward slash carry. Well, about a year ago, I had Gordon McDonald on this podcast for the very first time, and we had just an incredible reaction, uh, response to that interview. Gordon has been a pastor and author for more than 50 years. He has written so many books, uh, most of which live on my shelves. And uh, in my heart, he has served as the chancellor at Denver Seminary and as the editor-at-large for Leadership Journal. He speaks around the world. And uh, I'll tell you, what Gordon can bring in this world, there are uh, not a lot of people like him. And there's so much wisdom. So uh, we will link to the previous episode in the show notes. But this one is, yes, a two and a half hour conversation. And uh, what he did, he shared with me, we struck up a friendship over the last few years a little document called The View from 80. It is not published, and he updates it every few months. He turned 80 last year, and uh, it's just 15 life principles that he thinks are the most important thing in life, having lived eight decades. So I said, Gordon, would you be willing to bring that to leaders? And he said, sure. So we're going to do this in person. Uh, we had a trip scheduled for July, but, you know, COVID and the border lockdown. So we did this via Zoom. You can watch it by video if you want but this does not diminish from the conversation at all. And so it's a little bit of a different format. Gordon is going to start by reading all 15 lessons, his view from 80. He's going to read the document, and then we're going to go into a conversation about it. So I think both have value, and there's just a beauty to his voice and his cadence. Uh, you can tell. I'm, I'm a little biased, but uh, I just think the world of Gordon have learned so much from him. And uh, if you're a young leader looking for wisdom, I think you're going to find an awful lot here. And we also have transcripts. And uh, those are in the show notes, carrynewhoff.com slash episode 366, if you want to look at them. Also want to welcome all of the new listeners. We had, I couldn't, can't believe this, 400,000, over 400,000 downloads in August last month. One week, 108,000. So I don't know who you all are, but I just want to say welcome uh, we are so glad to have you on board, and uh, this is why we do what we do to uh, bring you people like Gordon McDonald. Well, today's episode is brought to you by Promedia Fire. So this is why we do what we do to bring you conversations as rich as uh, I think this one is. So let me ask you a question before we get started. What do all these people have in common? Marie built the creative team from ground up for Hilton Hotels as a senior creative operations manager. Sam is an award-winning film composer and video producer, and Kyle is an award-winning graphic designer. So the one thing that these three people have in common, they've had great success in the world. They're now working for ProMedia Fire, helping churches and nonprofits. Marie left Hilton to be the creative operations manager at ProMedia Fire. Sam is leading the video team, and Kyle is leading the graphics team. So your church can have an entire fleet of professionals like this 
providing digital strategy and a creative framework to help your church grow online. Book your free strategy session today at promediafire.com forward slash church growth. And Red Letter Challenge is back. So over 100,000 people, 400 churches have been through Red Letter Challenge. And if you're looking for a way to bring people into the essence of the message of Jesus, the Red Letter Challenge is something you want to check out. A lot of leaders right now are facing a very divided church. Sometimes that's divided physically. Sometimes, uh, yeah, it's just politically or theologically or whatever. Why not refocus your church? One church that went through the Red Letter Challenge during COVID said that even though they were distanced, they'd never been as unified. And uh, that's what a focus on the basics can do. So the Red Letter Challenge is a 40-day study that dives into the words of Jesus, gives everyone really practical challenges, based on Jesus' words. It can be done by individuals or small groups, but to get the most out of this resource, you can do it as a whole church, a 40-day church challenge that's done for you. Author Zach Zender has made this tool available at a discount of 10 to 40% for listeners of this podcast. And if you're a pastor, you can get a free copy mailed to you. It's all turnkey, small groups, sermons, kids' materials, kids' books, um, graphics, all done for you. So go to redletterchallenge.com forward slash carry to get your free offers today. Redletterchallenge.com forward slash carry. You'll get the discounts and as pastors, a free copy for yourself if you go to that link. Well, uh, I could not be more excited about bringing you this conversation. It's rich and I hope it does for your soul what it has done for mine. So let's begin by having Gordon go through the list, this little document he put together called uh, The View from 80. So Gordon's going to walk us through the 15 life and leadership lessons that he feels at this point are most important to him. Okay, number one, A View from 80. Put the most significant people in your life, your spouse, your family, close friends and mentors, put them into the calendar first. The second. Never, ever stop growing. Stay open to fresh ways and ideas that sustain your physical and mental health, that sharpen your working skills, that increase your knowledge, and, of course, enrich your wisdom and spiritual life. Number three, be more a priest and less a preacher to people. Bless people with the powers of hope and grace and courage and love. Number four, always keep in mind that the time will come when you will have to relinquish your titles, your privileges, and slip into obscurity, ultimately the obscurity of death. Number five, prepare yourself for those occasions when you, like most people, will suffer, fail, fall into doubt, face conflict, experience loss. Number six, be trustworthy and dependable, a person who keeps his or her word. Don't make promises you can't keep. Number seven, be a spiritual father or mother to teachable people who may someday inherit your responsibilities. Number eight, live modestly, stay free of debt. Be generous. Develop a financial strategy for your future. Be wary of those who use money to buy your favor. Number nine, 
expect to reorganize your inner life about every seven to 10 years. Number 10, receive compliments given to you or criticism or counsel with humility and appreciation. Avoid whining, complaining, self-pity. Assume that there is at least a grain of truth in the things that critics say about you and your work. Number 11, stay alert for the evils and temptations embedded in institutional life. Number 12, be quick to say with sincerity, thank you, well done, I'm sorry. I forgive you, or how can I help? Number 13, always maintain a relationship with one or two mentors who can aid you in hearing God's voice. Number 14, master the art of asking the kind of penetrating questions that opens up someone's heart. And finally, number 15, Retreat to the cross regularly. Express your appreciations. Name your sins. Pray for the world. Listen for God's calls to do things that are bigger than you. Well, that in and of itself was probably enough, but uh, then we talked about it for a couple hours. So uh, let me bring you the rest of the conversation with Gordon McDonald. Gordon, it's good to be with you today. And... uh, we, uh, every time I spend with you just feels richer than the time before. So thank you for taking the time to be with us. Well, thank you, Carrie, for asking me. Yeah. So we're living in a very um, tense time, unlike we've seen in decades with the riots going on in the United States as we record this. And I would love to begin by having you reflect, because you began ministry in the 1960s when tensions were very high, on any observations, any remembrances you have of leading through the situation in the 1960s? Well, this has some of the similarities to the 1960s. Obviously, these kind of demonstrations often involve the younger generation. Uh, They're not thinking as much about history in the past where these things may get you or not get you. They really don't have a real accurate sense of the future. I know I didn't in the 1960s. So what you're getting in the streets is a lot of well-intentioned people who really are hurt and angry and wanna be imaginative about a new future, but, but they're young. And so sometimes things don't go quite as they thought they were going to go. So every day you see the unexpected happen in one way or the other. When the adrenaline gets running and anger is at its highest, and when you feel really hurt or put down or ignored or neglected, all sorts of things can happen that uh, you never thought yourself capable of being. I came into the ministry for all practical purposes in 1962 I was in seminary pastoring a little tiny church of about 60 people and uh, trying to make sense of this. I come out of a tradition which was at its peak or rising to its peak in those days, which said the church and pastors are supposed to concern themselves only with issues of salvation and evangelism and getting people to come to Jesus. 
all of this other stuff in the streets of Chicago and other cities of the country, you're, you're, you don't even give any attention to them. And uh, then the Vietnam War broke out to add all of this. And I remember as a young pastor feeling very, very disturbed. Why couldn't I talk about Vietnam? Why couldn't I mm. talk about civil rights? Why couldn't I talk about the rights of women to enter into society as equal partners with men? Um, it bothered me because it wasn't encouraged in seminary. Just avoid that stuff. I remember two elders in a few years beyond that taking me out to breakfast because I had dared to pray the day before in service, our worship service, about peace in Vietnam. Hmm. And their comment to me, Carrie, was, um, you're going to talk about Vietnam a lot. Would you like to remember that about half your congregation makes its money designing and producing uh, the weapons of warfare? If wow. there's peace in Vietnam, your offerings are going to go down. I remember thinking about that and just being staggered by the implications. And then with the, uh, the riots in the streets of American major cities, uh, I invited Gail and I, my wife Gail and I invited about 30 black young people to our home one night to eat pizza and, and talk about this stuff. And in the next elders meeting at our church, one of the elders came absolutely furious that I had done this, demanding that I, re, um, that I apologize that I'd had these people in my home. And uh, if I wouldn't do that, he was going to quit the, the board. And I remember sitting there thinking, my whole ministry is on the line this evening. This could be the last thing I'm ever going to do. And just about the time that I was ready to panic, the chairman of the elders said to this other elder, well, we're going to miss you if you're leaving the board because our vote is to stick with our pastor. He's done well. So those were some of the scary experiences wow. that none of us were trained to deal with in those days. I have great regret, regrets that I didn't go to Selma, Alabama and march with Dr. King and all the other people. I have great regrets that I didn't say more about the issue of war as it surges in the mind and heart of the Christian. I have great regret in those early days that I didn't act more justly toward the women in our congregation. I just was taught to do otherwise. So it took me a few years to gain the courage to speak out about those things. What was it like in the 1960s? Uh, I was three when King was assassinated, so I have no living memory of Dr. King. Um, I know a little bit of his daughter's work through Orange and Rethink, and uh, she's a good friend of some friends of mine. Um, but we see him through the lens of history. But when you think back to those first years of leadership for you as a young pastor, how is Dr. King perceived? What, what would you want to share with this generation about that time? Well, a lot of the, I'm embarrassed to say this, but I was raised a Baptist. I was raised mm -hmm. in a fundamentalist, traditional Baptist home. So it was easy to hear people talking all the time in the 60s, Oh, Martin Luther King, he's a communist. Uh, you, just, you just wait. He's going to do some really bad things if we're not careful. And, uh, you know, in my own heart, I saw none of that. Kind. I couldn't bring myself to even think that way. Yeah. So at first, you just kept quiet and you let people babble around you. 
But finally, it comes to a moment when uh, you have to start making yourself heard. I, I went to a special uh, Holy Week service where Dr. King preached. I was within about 20 feet of him while he opened the uh, scriptures that day. And I, I can't remember what the message was about, but it was during Holy Week. <laughs> and I remember the thrill of being in the presence of this incredible man who was rising to his peak about that time. Uh, watching the way he preached so eloquently, so convictionally, um, he didn't make a mistake with his words, and his points were driven home like you would drive a nail with a hammer. And when I left the building that day, having heard him speak, I was a convert to the civil rights movement and felt very strongly that what this man was giving to us uh, and from out of his call from God was something we had to take very, very, very seriously. Hmm. What um, what advice would you give to uh, church leaders today in light of everything that you're seeing in the news right now, everything that's going on in America, in light of what you've learned uh, throughout your decades in leadership, Gordon? There's no easy advice. Uh, almost any pastor in the so-called evangelical world will tell you that if he or she says something of a controversial nature um, from the right side of politics or the left side, um, the words will be, I'll split my church right down the middle. And you, you hear this over and over again, whether it's just imagined or not, I don't know. But the feeling that a lot of pastors in the evangelical tradition have is that uh, th this is a, um, a game changer. And so you have to be very careful about how you pray, what you preach about, what you urge people to do and not to do. I am not a young man today. I don't have to face that. Um, I, uh, I, I faced it my time, and, and it was a lot, I think, simpler than it is today. But I do think there's a place for pastors to preach the scriptures and um, to preach them in such a way that people are allowed to, to weigh what the message is and how it ought to be applied in their framework of conviction and whatever actions that they have to take. Um, I meet with a, a dozen or so pastors almost every Monday morning on Zoom. And um, we talked about this just yesterday, how you handle um, the recalcitrant angry person and how it really takes uh, great patience. And you have to be thinking two or three sentences ahead. Mm. How will this come across if I say it? How will that come across? Um, I think the most important things to be said can be said in prayer. And uh, I, I encourage young men to be able to articulate to their congregations as they address the living God in pastoral prayers, for example, challenging people to think and uh, to listen more carefully and not be afraid to act when things happen which are destructive. Uh, we're in a difficult time in the evangelical movement as I see it yeah. uh, because we have very, very little leadership these days that are telling us uh, how to go about these things. And um, it's a time when I think a lot of us feel betrayed by our own leaders and um, mm -hmm. Uh, I think we need we need to just keep thinking our way through this, praying our way through it on a day-to-day -day basis. And I've said to you about the best I can say right now. 
I appreciate that, Gordon. And it is a very, very complicated time. But uh, uh, I uh, appreciate what you were saying about wishing you had gone to Selma to march with Dr. King. I think those are moments that we, you know, I think if we all had that one to take over again, we'd all say, yeah, of course I'd be there. But it's very complicated in the moment. And there probably is a Selma today. There probably is something, but it will seem much less clear in the moment than uh, it will seem in history. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Hmm. I remember learning lessons from that when Ground Zero, uh, the trade towers hurt. Yeah. Um, on that morning, I was on my way driving from Boston to Atlanta to participate in a service. And the trade towers had gone down. And within hours, the northbound uh, lane of Interstate 95 was crammed like rush hour with construction vehicles and trucks and everything imaginable all headed to New York uh, to participate in the recovery of the trade towers. And on the southbound lane of 95 that I was driving toward Atlanta, there was hardly a car on the road. And I started saying to myself, what's wrong with this picture? Why, is, why are other people in the other lane having a traffic jam and I'm just driving to be a part of a church meeting in Atlanta? And finally, I heard myself say out loud as I'm driving, Gordon, this is the story of your life. When the whole world is going north, you're going south. You've got to think about this. And I pulled into a rest area and I thought, what in the world can I do? And then it hit me. I knew some of the top Salvation Army officers in the Northeast area of our country. What if I called them? And I called one of the, the top officers and I said, could you use Gail and me at Ground Zero? He said, how soon can you get here? I said, we'll be there in 24 hours. And I turned that car around and went back to the nearest Hertz station, got rid of it, found a flight because planes were still flying met Gail in Hartford, Connecticut. We drove down to New York and spent the next seven or eight days with the firefighters and the policemen right in the middle of it all, looking for body parts and listening for uh, anybody who was trapped. But I learned that from the not going to Selma. I didn't go then. I wasn't going to be stopped this time. <laughs> hmm. I appreciate you sharing that, Gordon. Well, I want to drill down on uh, something you shared with me uh, over the last year, and you keep updating this every few months, I guess. You have this document, I hope, really hope becomes a book one day, called The View from 80. And having turned 80 last year, you just took some notes on just some life lessons that you've learned. And it, it's profound. When, whenever I read the latest version of the list, I'm, I'm very, very moved. And I want to work through that with you because you have a perspective. You have the wisdom of age. You've been blessed with an exceptionally sharp mind. I remember the first time I interviewed you, we went uh, about an hour and a half and then another uh, 40 minutes on top of that. And then we had lunch and then we hung out. And I'm like, wow, I, I don't have that stamina in my 50s. So good for you. <laughs> You've got it sharp as a tack. And to be able to, to share this with people is, is, is fantastic. So uh, I'm just going to go through the list, Gordon and uh, ask you a few questions on each point and just try to plumb a little bit uh, of what's underneath that. So the first thing is put the most significant people in your life, your spouse, family, close friends, and mentors into the calendar first. When did you realize this? 
When did that finally dawn on you? Because I think this is a struggle every leader has. Well, that was a very early conviction that grew up in my heart um, in the first years of, of my marriage, actually before I even met Gail, my wife. I grew up in a very unhappy pastor's home. Hmm. My, my father, who, who was a wonderful preacher back in the 1930s and 40s, had no idea how to treat a woman, his wife, with dignity. I remember my mother saying to me, even when I was a small boy, she would say, son, someday if God gives you a wife, treat her like a queen. Serve her. Be involved in her life. Tell her how much you love her many, many times. Help her out as she does what she does as the wife in the house. I was hearing that from my heartbroken mother when I was seven, eight, nine years of age. And then when I was in college, I came under the influence of a Presbyterian pastor and his wife that lived down the block from where my college apartment was. And um, they had me in for dinner one night. I tell the story often. And the food was terrific. But what I saw that night about the way they treated each other absolutely blew me out of the water. I had never seen a man talk to a woman like this man talks so lovingly to his wife asking her questions, um, asking her advice and her counsel, uh, affirming her, laughing at her humor. It was, and I never saw a woman who honored her husband so completely and was there and anxious to love him, to be affectionate, uh, to ask her questions that drew him out about his part of the day. And I saw this night after night after night. And I remember saying one night on the way home, if I ever get to be married, I want a wife just like her. Mm. If I ever get to be married, I want to be a husband just like him. If I ever get to be married, I want a marriage just like theirs. So I had these these models. And then about the time that Gail and I got married, I was walking one day with an old man, an old pastor. He must have been about the age I am now. And I asked him a question which a lot of people today would feel was stupid. But in those days, it was a very important question. The question was, what comes first, my family or the Lord's work? Hmm. That was a question that every pastor, every leader was asking him or herself in those days. So I asked this question, and this old man looked at me, and he said in a rather straight, blunt tone, Gordon, your family is the Lord's work. And that one sentence changed me. I've lived with that sentence to this day and have really tried to see my family and my close-in friends as the the center point of the Lord's work in and through my life. Obviously, I have not done it perfectly, but it's been the goal that I've reached for constantly from the beginning to this point, some 60 years later. Gail and I will be married 60 years next year. Congratulations. uh, Thank you. Yeah, I can only tell you that there is only one or two times where there have been regrets. It's been an incredible trip. But I go back and I hear my mother's voice. I see that couple that had me at their table night after night. And I hear from this old guy, your family is the Lord's work. And it became very clear to me. You take a clean calendar every week. And the first thing you write into it is your time with Jesus. And then your time with your family. Everything else is third place. Hmm. 
I wish someone had told me that when I started in ministry. It took me uh, a few years to figure that out, and it was a painful lesson. Um, one of the things, because it's interesting, the view from 80, uh, I'm 55, so our kids have been grown and gone, so to speak, for about six years now when the youngest left. Oh, look, You don't look at Carrie. Well, thank you, Gordon. I'll take that from you. <laughs> thank you. But you know what amazes me, Gordon, is just how much time there is left. Like when, when, how, how many years have you and Gail had together since your youngest sort of went to college or got married or left the home? It's been decades, hasn't it? Well, they left about when we were age 46. So what yeah. is that? that? That gives you 26, 20. Yeah, my 35 God. years. How many years? 34 years. 34 years? Is that right? Well, let's both agree that that's good enough. That's good enough. It's close enough. Math is not my strong suit, Gordon. But you know, the thing that gets me is you you almost have, you know, if the Lord gives you health and you live to a good age and you have a sharp mind and everything, you have more years without your kids at home than you did with your kids at home. I knew you were going to say that, and that's very true. Yeah. Do you want to speak to that? Because most of the leaders watching this, listening to this, they are in the stage right now where all they can see college feels like an eternity away. And what I'm learning in this season with my wife, Tony, is, oh, wow, there are a lot of hours together as a couple. And you and Gail have enjoyed decades together where it's just the two of you again. So do you want to speak into that? Yeah, we, we, we did one or two things right in that area of uh, thinking about marital dynamics. One was we never confused the family with the marriage, mm. which is something a lot of people do and don't think about the implications. And so they, they have 18, 20, 22 years of child uh, presence in, in the home. And they get all their jollies out of the children. Everything is about the children. They talk about the children. And particularly mothers have in the past made this mistake. They, they let the children absorb all their love and there's not much left when, the, when the, the man appears on the scene. And somewhere along the line, Gail and I realized these kids are going to leave us. Mm. And when they leave us, we better have something that fills the void. And we almost missed that. As long as the children were home, we had a ball with them. I went to almost every one of our son's soccer games, every one of our daughter's basketball games, every one of their concerts and dramatics, because they were very active, and we were always there as a spectator. Then they pulled a dirty trick on us. They both left the same year, off to college, and suddenly Gail and I didn't have our fun makers anymore. Yeah. And um, for about six months to a year, uh, we just filled all of those holes, those vacancies, with more ministry more articles to write, more meetings to speak at. And one day we both realized separately, we're not having any fun anymore. Hmm. This, is, this is not going anywhere in terms of husband and wife. And that was probably the darkest 12 months of our lives. It, it, it just had all kinds of bad possibilities coming out of it. And I'll make this very short. Um, one one week, I was reading the New York Times about an article on hiking in Switzerland, and I felt this surge of anger in me that I had always put this dream of going to Switzerland on the shelf for other things. And I turned to Gail and I said, we're going to Switzerland next month. Why? To have fun. What do we do? I don't know. We'll figure it out when we get there. 
And we went, and, and blessed be Gail that she was willing to do this on just a two or three weeks notice, but we just disappeared. And for 31 days, we climbed mountains and walked trails, ate good food, slept in in the morning, made a lot of love, did a lot of things that we should have been doing. And when we came home, we had a new marriage. And that's been true now for the last 35 years. We, have, we had to learn how to have fun. We had to learn all over again how to talk to each other on an adult level. We had to learn, thirdly, how to cooperate with each other. Mm-hmm. That's been a big one for me, you know, as a man to participate, to go over the fence into Gail's world and learn how to do cooking and learning how to um, set up a menu and learning how to keep the house. Uh, all of that has been learned after the kids left. Uh, we love our children. They're, they've made us grandchildren now five times over, but um, we enjoy being friends living alone together. And uh, it, it, it's been a, fortunately though, through that year, which could have killed us, um, we went the best direction and it's made all the difference. I agree. You either live two solitudes or you separate or you learn how to become friends. And uh, I'm, I'm so glad for what you shared. Uh, before we move on, because this is a big issue for a lot of pastors, a lot of leaders, how do you say no? Because, uh, you know, you have way more demands, even at 80, on your time than you can possibly say yes to. Do you have a filter for that? How, how to make sure that you always have time for the, the people and things that matter most? Basically, for the first half of my ministry, uh, I didn't do that well. Hmm. Uh, I was what they call a pleaser. I wanted everybody to be happy. And I think that's where you'll find a lot of pastors. You know, we are, we are driven by people care, by lighting people up, by answering their questions, being uh, a father, a mother to them. And I was one of those in the first half of my adult life. And believe me, it drained me. Uh, I, I reached a couple of times of just virtually total exhaustion because I just didn't know how to say no to people. And then there came a day when there was a crash in life. And when I came out the other end, I had to do an assessment. What's the baggage I'm carrying that's going to destroy me in the second half of ministry if I don't straighten some things out? And I could tell you some of those things, but right now the pertinent one was, I've got to learn how to to draw a circle around the things I can do and therefore identify the things that I shouldn't be doing. Hmm. And one of the things that I learned in those days is that when people approached me wanting me to do something, be a part of something that was really not according to my sense of call, I would say to them, now, I need to talk to you very, very frankly. What you're asking me to do, I would like to do because I have a feeling it would make you happy, but it's not a part of my call from God. And secondly, if I did do it for you, I would not do it well because it's not in my gift mix. Mm. Now, I can introduce you to someone who can do this and do it well for you. But I will damage your case if I try to do things just to make people happy that are not a part of my gift. When I got the courage to say that, and I began to say it over and over again, I almost recorded it. (laughs) Almost every person would say, well, that makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Thank you for being so candid with me. I understand what you're saying. If you can help me lead, go to somebody else, I'll be glad to do it. 
And I, it, almost overnight, I cut back dramatically on things that I was doing to make people happy and to do the things that I was doing that, can I say this a little bit tritely, that make God happy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so to a considerable extent, the second half of life for me has been much, much happier because I don't do much that's not within the, the mix of my giftedness, things I think I can do fairly well, um, things that won't drain me and, and uh, just leave me high and dry. But it took me about 30 years to figure that out. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a tough lesson, Gordon, and a lot of us find it the hard way. I, I certainly am finding that the hard way. I don't think I've got it fully mastered yet, but uh, it's difficult. Thing, Carrie. Yeah, for sure. I, we also learned to, uh, to I, I sat down and discussed this with our elders on many occasions. And I said to them, Gail and I need bodyguards. And we would appreciate it if three of you would be on duty every week on Sunday at the end of our worship, every day, every week, three different elders. And we'd like you to be just off our shoulders. And when people approach us uh, that are the wrong kind of people, you know, there's always that, I call them very draining people. They, they need to have a word with you every, every week. They, they manufacture questions, criticisms, get your attention. And so what I said to the elders is, I need you to filter these people out and detour them so that Gail and I can spend our time praying for and talking to people who have legitimate needs. And our elders took that on very seriously. And, and, we, and they, they call themselves the bodyguards. And they, they would come up as the, invoca- the benediction was being pronounced, and they would be five or six feet off to the left or right. And when they saw one of these needy people coming, mm-hmm. they would say, now, Mary or Joe, Pastor Mac and, and Gail have to really be talking to some other people. So if I can help you, fine. Otherwise, let's go for another day, okay? And they protected us, and that made a huge difference. Did you worry about missing out? I think that's, you know, with the advent of social media, a lot of young leaders, they look at all the opportunities, they see how their peers are, and they're like, but Gordon, if I start saying no to people or opportunities in the wider church or conferences or events, like I'm just going to miss out, what would you say to them? Yeah, you are going to miss out. Uh, I think as you get older, as the years go by, you recognize that little bit by little, there are places you will never go, people you will never meet, things you will never do. And you have to start saying no to wonderful opportunities out there. Uh, My father uh, used to say to me, make sure you don't do just good things, but rather that you're choosing to do the best. Hmm. And uh, I took that. That was a good piece of advice. Uh, But yeah, I just, I came, I'm still living with what you just asked to this very day. There are all sorts of things going on in this world that I, I would love to do that I actually think I could do better than maybe somebody else. But it's not, an, it's not on my desk. It's, it's something else. God has not led in that direction. So in the second half of life, I've learned to say no to some very good things hmm. and very good people. I think we'll leave it there because sometimes you can, you can drill down on that forever and ever and ever. And I think you're right. I, I was dealing with a really strong season of having to say no and worried about missing out. And sometimes, yeah, you just got to say no. Okay, let's get to uh, uh, the view from 80.2. Never, ever, with an exclamation mark, stop growing. Stay open to fresh ways and ideas that sustain your physical and mental health, sharpen your working skills, 
increase your knowledge, and enrich your wisdom and spiritual life. So let's start here. What is your rhythm of learning these days? Uh, it starts with the fact that I have a huge sense of curiosity. And we're back to the original comment of a moment ago. If you have a lot of curiosity, you want to know everything. And once again, you're, you're, you have to face the fact that if you're going to really grow and be productive in your life in a godly sense of the word, there's going to be a lot of things you're going to have to slough off and you can't do. So I'm a great believer in periodic assessments where you sit down and you take a day or two and you get real honest with yourself. You ask the question, what have the last five years been like? What have I learned? What should I have learned and didn't? What were the mistakes I made? What's likely to be the most important things on the horizon for the next five years? Hmm. And you build a plan that's in some ways aided by what the last five or seven years have been like and what therefore you kind of feel God may be whispering to you about in the, about the next seven years. So I've, I've kept walking in blocks of time like that over the years and reaching a certain point where I've been, I've been ruthless to assess myself physically, mentally, spiritually, relationally, financially, philosophically, uh, everything's on the table in, in those moments. And um, in my latter years, I learned to invite two or three friends into the process where I kind of reported to them what I'd learned. And then they would feed back to me. The Quakers call this a clearness committee. Okay. And uh, it's, it's, it's a moment when they're not allowed to criticize your life, but they're allowed to ask you tough questions. And so I've had friends that I've permitted over these years to enter into those rearranging moments and ask me tough questions, uh, which have led to my saying, well, that's something I probably need to slough off and forget about. This is something I need to know about. But the ultimate objective of these block points every few years is to make sure you're on a growth track that um, aids and amends the, the point, place where you are in life at that moment. One of the things, Gordon, and maybe we'll drill down on this when we look at number 15, um, your life lesson, but you seem to have a very sober view of self. And it's something I don't see as much in younger leaders. And, and let, me, let me try to phrase it this way. For a lot of people today, the problem isn't here inside. The problem's out there. It's the system. It's a denomination. It's the economy. It's the team, it's whatever, but it's certainly not me. And when I listen to you talk and I spend time with you, I hear someone who has a very sober view of self. Can you, can you comment on that a little bit? I think that's a fair, a fair assessment. And um, sometimes it may even be a legitimate criticism. Um, Gail has to push me every once in a while to say, you're, you're getting too serious, loosen up, dial back. Um, and, but I do think it, it reflects the world I grew up in. Mm. I'm a product of the Depression and World War II. Uh, I wasn't born during the Depression, but my father and mother were, like everybody their age, were highly influenced by the Depression and its values. And they instilled those Depression values in my brother and me. Yeah. So we would not go into debt. We would, uh, well, I, we just had modest convictions about a lot of things. 
So I come out of that world where you, you manage your life with great care uh, and you're always looking around over your shoulder, you know, is, is there someone coming after you? So I did have that. The second thing I grew up with is I grew up in a brand of evangelical Christianity that was very serious about winning the world to Christ. You know, I'm a, I'm a Bill Bright uh, yeah. product, to, to name one. If I heard Bill Bright say, come let us change the world once, I heard him say it a million times. You, with Bill Bright, you didn't have any time for vacations. You, you gave every day and every night to reading the four spiritual laws and confronting the next person with the story of Jesus. Uh, that, that shaped my college years. And I look back with some regret, to be quite honest with you. There are things I should have done, um, courses I should have taken, places I should have gone to, and I, I didn't do them because people like Bill Bright were saying, saving one more person from hell is, is the most important thing to do. So I had to break free of that very deliberately in the years after that. But it left its impact upon me that life is serious. So my friends and my dear wife and my children have, um, have helped me over the years to loosen up. Uh, having said all that to you, I would like you to know I really do have a pretty good sense of humor. <laughs> yeah, you do. <laughs> but what I appreciate about it, it makes confession so much easier when you have a sober view of self. It makes it so much easier to say I'm sorry. It makes it so much easier rather than defend yourself. And I think that's actually an admirable quality and, and characteristic. What was your habit? And I love the, the Quaker approach. But when you look back, when you're in the thick of ministry, you're leading one of the first mega churches in the U.S. as these large churches are developing in the 1970s. How did you, in the pressure of ministry day to day, carve out a rhythm for learning and, and self-improvement and growth? If I understand your question... Um, my response would be that in my first five or eight years of ministry, um, I was a pretty disorganized person. Hmm. I was writing most of my sermons on Saturdays. It was nothing, nothing, nothing for me to get up at 4.30 on Sunday morning and polish off my sermon preparation. Uh, a lot of pastors live that way, but they won't admit it. And yeah. I wouldn't have admitted it at the time. Those sermons, the ink was still wet on them when I got up into the pulpit on many Sunday mornings. But I was a disorganized person by nature. Um, I was, I'm a very artistic person. And I think artistic people tend to be disorganized as they're going by the, 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 the existential moment. And, and my father, on the other hand, was an engineer. So I drove him nuts. Uh, you know, for him, everything was like a piece of a jigsaw puzzle going into place. And it's one of the reasons we never got along. I was the poet. He was the engineer. But in my 31st year of ministry, and I remember specifically telling you about this uh, at another time, I crashed. Um, I was exhausted. I was devastated that I wasn't getting enough done. And I found myself one day weeping uncontrollably on the couch of our home. And Gail handled the moment very beautifully and kind of brought me out of it. But I spent a whole day just out of control with my emotions. And out of that came, first of all, the decision, I was going to start keeping a journal. This is December 1968. Mm. I was going to keep a journal of almost every day and try to put my life in order by 
daily reflection on what, what was happening. And then secondly, I decided to submit my life to a calendar. And I broke up seven days a week into three blocks of time, morning, afternoon, and evening. And I decided that, that if it was a working day, the church would get two of the three blocks, but not the third. And uh, so if you're doing your math, I gave the church five and a half blocks of work a week. And Gail and I took Thursday and we, we named that Sabbath day. And that was the day when all things in private life were to be renewed. Our marriage, our friendships, the children, taking, you know, having fun. It wasn't a day off where you cut the lawn. It was a day to renew life. And for about 25 years, we were pretty faithful in doing that. And uh, I would not violate that Thursday Sabbath unless something really tragic had happened or something that really demanded the, my myself. But that's the way I organized life at the age of 31. And I would say to you, um, I'm glad Gail's not in the room. I've done about an, a 78% job on that, which I think is pretty good. That's not bad. And that moment, that day, that's the opening story in ordering your private world, is it not? That day where everything cracked, which as a younger leader, if you haven't read that book, you need to read it. You absolutely need to read it. It's uh, it's incredible. Well, uh, principle number three, be more a priest and less a preacher to people. Bless them with the powers of hope, grace, courage, and love. Can you explain the difference between a priest and a preacher? Yeah, I'm playing with words here. Yeah, yeah. I'm making words do what I want them to do to, to make my point. A preacher is a person who gets up on the stage, as they now call it, a pulpit in my day. A preacher is that tells you everything he knows. Or I should say he or she, although there weren't that many she's in that day. Um, a preacher is telling you what his plan is for your life. And um, it's not unusual the preachers I see today, and I'm going to be, I'm going to be uh, hopeful I didn't misuse my privilege of saying this, I can't stand the notion that a preacher finishes a sermon and disappears immediately to the green room. If you can't defend your words in the presence of people, you don't preach them. So for me, a preacher is someone who just tells, it's a one-way conversation. A priest is a two-way conversation. A priest is, is, uh, is person-centered. A priest draws people to Jesus. A priest sensitizes him or herself to the, the needs that the person is projecting. A priest gives people hope. A priest gives people a sense of renewal and a way to Jesus. A, a priest has is, is got the person in mind. The preacher's got in mind, how good can my sermon be? So... As years went by and I got older, I found myself saying, I'd like to be more a priest than a preacher. I love preaching. I love preaching. You ask me to preach tomorrow morning, I'll be there. But I love what a priest does. A priest blesses people. And by the way, that was one of the things that touched me when I was at Ground Zero at 9-11. I spent several of those days, about half the day, uh, walking the perimeter of the pit uh, with a Trappist monk, and he was dressed out in the, the the brown habit and the white rope and the sandals. And one man after another in that 
mess and horror of, of the dirt and the dust and the, everything that was going on, people would see him and me coming and they would rush to him and they would fall to their knees in front of him and they would say, Father, would you hear my confession? Father, would you give me a blessing? And I watched this time after time after that. And I would say to him, Norman, what are you saying to those guys? And he would say, well, I touched their forehead, signed the cross, and I say, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I sign you with the cross. Go in peace, my dear friend, and do what God wants you to do. Finally, I said to him, Norman, does anybody say that to you? He laughed. He said, no, it's been a long time. I said, may I? And he immediately sank to his knees right there in all the dirt and the rubble. And I put my hand on his head in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I sign you with the cross. Norman, go in peace. And I started doing that to people. And I would say, I know you're Protestant, and you're going to think this is a Catholic act, but it ought not to be exclusively a Catholic act. It's for us, too. I want to give you a blessing. And I've been blessing people over these years now, thousands of people. I rarely have ever gotten anything but the deepest emotion, solemnity, and appreciation. We're a movement that needs to know what the priest does. And one of the things a priest does is bless people. Uh, and that's been, you know, an old man at 81 can bless people. <laughs> and, and I love doing it. That's, uh, <clears throat> sorry, <clears throat> this happens when we're together. Um, yeah, thank you. You know, Gordon, content's everywhere. And um, i just love for you, because I think as we become more digital, like, Content is just everywhere. And I produce content, people produce content. How do you be a priest in a digital age? There's a book out there that was um, written and published about two years ago by a woman whose name is Virginia Sweet. She's a medical doctor in the Central Valley of California. And she's written a couple of books. The first one's called God's Hospital. The second is called Slow Medicine. And slow medicine is her attempt to take a hard look at how modern medicine is being practiced. You know, the physician walks in, he looks at the computer, he looks at the numbers, he writes a prescription, and he's out of the door and he hasn't said a word to the patient in the two and a half minutes he was in the room. And Virginia Sweet says, that's fast medicine. And yes, it may treat some of the biological realities of the body, but it's done nothing for the soul of the patient. And it hasn't done much for the soul of the doctor either. Yeah. And so she talks in, in this whole um, book about what it means to operate slowly. Sir William Ausler, who was the great father of medicine 125 years ago, he talks about touching the patient, listening to the body of the patient, asking the right diagnostic questions. And Osler and Virginia Sweet 100 years later say, and this takes time. This takes attention. This takes centering in on the patient and making them in that moment the most important person in your world. Um, that's how you do it. And I wish I'd had, I had Osler years ago, and so I was beginning to learn that. Um, we had a woman in our church 
by the name of Marilyn Rosenthal. She was on very stiff medication uh, for some particular mental issue that I never identified. But when you saw Marilyn coming, you knew you were into a several minute conversation because she talked at 10 miles an hour, not 60 miles an hour. And one day she came into the front of our church building and she was about 100 feet away. And I turned around, I was talking to somebody and I, I just yelled out, hello, Marilyn, how are you? And turned back to my conversation. A couple of minutes later, I realized she had made her way across the lobby to where I was, and she inserted herself between me and my conversation partner. And she looked up because she was very short, and she said in her medicated voice, this is the way it sounded, Pastor Mac, you say, hello, Marilyn, how are you? But you really don't want to know. You don't have time to find out. What do you say to a woman like that? She was right. My church was getting so big, and there were so many important people, and I was among them all. I didn't have time for a Maryland. And I know this goes back and confuses what I said a little while ago about elder bodyguards, but they do fit in the largest run. And I had to say, Marilyn, I apologize. You're 100% right, and I'm the one that's wrong. But if you want to have content in a digital age, you've got to be willing to stop when the Holy Spirit says stop. You know, where is Philip in the Ethiopian if the Holy Spirit doesn't say to Philip, stop? And he stops. I can think of times when I didn't stop, and I can immediately think, I'd have missed it with the Ethiopian unit. I'd probably, you know, I'd have gone in another direction to somebody who was more impressive to me. So content has to do in the digital age with, are you open enough to hear the nudges of the Holy Spirit when he says this one and not that one? Spend time here. Don't spend time here. That's not slow medicine. That's slow ministry. Hmm. Wow. Okay. Insight number four, always keep in mind uh, that the time will come when you will have to relinquish titles and privileges and slip into obscurity, ultimately the obscurity of death. That's an emotional one for me, Gordon. What's that been like for you? Gail and I began to talk about dying Uh, and the implications of the various kinds of dying there is when we were in our early 50s. We listened carefully to people a generation older than us, and we we noted several things. We we were astonished with how angry many of them were, Mm. how many of them were jealous, how many of them were living useless lives after the age of 70. (laughs) We saw that happening over and over and over again. And yeah. it was clear that they hadn't planned. See, people are, are encouraged to plan financially for your older years. That's very smart. But you have to plan everything else about your life, planning in terms of health, planning in terms of mental acuity, plans in terms of, of you know, how you're going, to change, you're going to adjust your marriage. Because of all the things I just managed, mentioned, your marriage begins to change at the age of 68 or 70 you begin to grow at different speeds. 
Okay. You know, one of you has a healthier body than the other. Yeah. And uh, you, you begin to change your taste. Uh, I, this is a terrible generalization, but women, for example, will be far more, it's my observation, relational in their latter years. Men want to get out and do things. They want to play golf and, you know, do all that bucket list stuff. And uh, so you can get some tensions going if you're not sensitive to that kind of stuff. So Gail and I began to smell that in our early 50s. And we began, this, the first question we began to deal with, and I have this in one of my books, what kind of an old man do I want to be? Because the old men that I was beginning to see around me, I didn't like them. Yeah. If, if I had an extra ticket to go to Fenway Park and watch the Red Sox, there was not many of those older men I wanted to take with me. Mm. Um, they just weren't fun to be with. And I, I said to myself, that's because they haven't asked, what's the last 20, 30% of my life supposed to look like? And, and how will I use it properly? So we started making mental and then real lists of people who were admirable and influential and followable. And then, of course, we had mental lists of people that we probably felt didn't have much to, to do it, uh, to, uh, to teach us. Then we made this decision at the age of 60. And, that, and this is Gordon and Gale. This is not anybody else. At the age of 60, I would step out of organizational leadership. Um, I've, I felt that too much of organizational leadership was a young woman or a young man's game. Yeah. It's people in their 30s, 40s, and early 50s who run the store. When you get to where we were getting, now you're the purveyor of wisdom and encouragement and hopefulness. But get out of all those meetings. I hear you. <laughs> yeah. So at the and I, I didn't know we would do it as well as we did it, but at the age of 60, I met with our board of elders at Grace Chapel and said, six months from now, Gail and I will be gone. Hmm. So you've got six months to start planning how you're going to do succession. And my argument was, you need to go back and produce a candidate from a, the generation behind me. Um, and you've got some time now to make that happen. That's 20 years ago. Yeah. I have never once, never once regretted that decision. Because the la I, I loved pastoral ministry. I loved preaching. I loved the four churches that we served. But these last 20 years have been the, the top because I've been able to give myself, as Gail has, to younger men and women and to be a mentor and a father. And, uh, but that was all, once again, deliberate, plan long-range planning of life like we plan an, an organization. How did you disentangle your identity from your work? Well, in one sense, I'm not sure I totally did. I mean, you, there are moments when you... You, see, you go to a church to speak or you're someplace and you watch people tell you how much they love their pastor and there's a little bit of ache in your heart and you say, I wish somebody loved me. Like <laughs> <laughs> That doesn't happen often, but it has happened, of course. Yeah. I'm a human being. I can relate. <laughs> but uh, I, I lost your question. Can you no, I was just asking how you disentangle your identity from your work. You know, there's that stat, Gordon, and I, I should do a little more research on it, but uh, it's been quoted so often, there must be a seed of truth that, you know, men retire. And this is particularly a male issue, apparently, but 
you know, and six months later, they die of a heart attack. And it's like the friends don't call, the phone doesn't ring. Uh, they were a salesperson, they were a pastor, and now they're who are they, right? And, and to your point, the grumpy old men who you wouldn't want to take to Fenway Park to see the Red Sox play because they've kind of lost themselves in the process of not having a day job. How did you, I mean, you've, you've always been productive. You're still writing, you're still speaking, but how did you, a lot, of, a lot of leaders hang on way too long because they can't imagine not being the pastor. And, and in this day and age, you, get the, you start getting the message at about the age, if you last till 65, you start, people start rolling their eyes and they, they pay you a kind of false respect. Oh, you're so wise, Pastor. But in, in their heart of hearts, they're saying, he doesn't know what he's talking about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, but you use the word retirement. I have never retired. And um, I, I, I refuse to dignify that word. I, um, I don't think the word's biblical to begin with. And, but of course, to be fair to the word, people in biblical times, for the most part, died in their late 30s, 40s. A few people lived longer than that. But there, there was no retirement time. If, if retirement time is playing uh, in Florida or something like that, Gail and I have just never had a penchant for doing that. Uh, we, we're, we're happy for the people in Florida, but we have no desire to join them unless it's just for two or three days in February in New England. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. That tiny escape, right, Gordon? So I didn't retire. I just moved laterally to yeah. another kind of ministry that was more 100% of who I am. I'm a pastor. Right. I'm a mentor to young men and women. Um, I like to speak. I like to write. And the doors were open and people opened them to give them opportunities. So, you know, here's my calendar building right now for my... 81st and 82nd year. It's not crammed. I don't want to stretch the truth, but I've got plenty to do. And Zoom is, <laughs> is, 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 is accelerating it in a new way. So I've just, I've pushed on and every day is a really happy day for me. I can't remember the last time I said this was a rotten day. Oh, that's wonderful. That's wonderful to hear. Did you have when you, and, and I mean, when I think about me, if I live that long at 70 or 80, I honestly, I have a mental list too. So I think of you, I think of Dallas Willard, Eugene Peterson, not that I belong in that company, but these were people who were contributing to the kingdom really, uh, you know, in, well, Peterson's case or Dallas Willard's case, or even Ravi Zacharias, who passed earlier this year, uh, they were all contributing until the very end. Uh, did you have mentors in mind when you were 60 and thought, yeah, like that person, like him, like her? Oh, yes. Dr. Vernon Grounds, former president of Denver Seminary. I knew him from age five to age 75. He was the father I never had. Wow. And he, he was a man of books. His library probably numbered, I'm just guessing, 10,000, 12,000 books. You can see all of them at the Denver Seminary Library today. But Vernon was, uh, Vernon was an incredible father to me. And he would say to me constantly, don't stop growing. Don't stop growing. Don't stop reading. Don't stop asking questions. And he just filled me with an excitement and anticipation to see how much more I could pile into this brain bank of mine, or you maybe say the soul bank 
you know, what was to be learned each day from each person who came along the way. And I watched him do this incessantly to virtually the day he died at the age of 96. And I kept saying to myself, I want to be that kind of a man. Uh, so that's been the inspiration all of these years. I have his picture over here on the wall. That's amazing. All right. Uh, principle number five. Uh, prepare yourself for those occasions when you, like most people, will suffer, fail, fall into doubt, face conflict, and experience loss. Um, kind of cool. What's, yeah, it's kind of gloomy, but it's it's very real. Um, you know, you read about the rock and the sand and, you know, these times will come. When Can you talk to us about a season of doubt for you, Gordon? Talk about several of them. I, I'm a doubter by nature. Uh, once again, artis, artistic people, uh, brutish people and uh, introverted people like me, we have a lot of space down deep inside of us to keep tossing thoughts over and revisiting them and seeing if we can polish them. Probably one of the, the great corner turner moments in my world happened in 1963, no, excuse me, 1983. Uh, I'm going to make this very short. I was invited to be a candidate for the president of one of the largest Christian organizations in the world. And uh, I remember saying to the person who was doing the, the headhunting, how many people are on your list? He said, about 60. I said, well, then I'll say yes, and I'll be a candidate because I'll just be able to tell people someday I was considered for the presidency of. Um, and uh, so I was on the list. Well, there came a day when they called and they said, we'd like to come to your town and uh, interview you and your wife. And so some professional guy came from another part of the country, spent an afternoon interviewing us. A few days later, we were told, the list has been cut from 60 to 20 and you're on it. Well, that got our attention. Then the next thing I know, board members from this organization were coming to visit. And they were asking if I could inter they could interview two or three people from our congregation. One day the phone call came, the list is down to six and you're still on it. Now, Gail and I knew we were into something that we hadn't sought. But I'm of a generation that believes heavily in God's call. And my, my uh, rationale was, this is the call of God in motion. I've got to follow it to its nth degree. Well, again, the story needs to be shortened. There came a day when they said, we're down to two. And you're on it. Wow. I remember calling two or three of the top evangelical leaders in America that I, I knew reasonably well and saying to them, what counsel you know, do you have to give to me? And, and I, I'm not going to drop names. Billy Graham told me I should never drop names. Uh, but one of them said, <laughs> if you get asked to do this job, it's a call to world Christian leadership. You have to say yes, no matter what the price. So Gail and I took a four-week vacation or a sabbatical or leave or whatever you said you call it. We went to our little cabin up in New Hampshire in the woods, and all day long we read biographers of great Christian leaders. Um, we walked, we talked, we prayed, we sang. It was one of the holiest months of our lives because it was all centered on, is, what is God saying here? I didn't ask for this. I have no ambition for this. Well, 
the month ended. There was one more big interview. And then the night of the decision came. And there finally came the phone call and the chairman of the board of this of this organization said, Gordon, we've picked the other person. Oh, wow. And I, I try to say this in modesty. Gail and I had tried to do everything right. Uh, we had we had crucified our ambition. We didn't think ego played any part in this. We were simply trying to obey the voice of God. And then this happens. And um, I went, we went, I went the next morning to staff meeting at our church and I told people what had been going on because all this had been done undercover. Right. And I said, you've watched me on many occasions when God has said yes to me. Now you're going to have to watch me when God says no. And for the next 10 days, I was the real spiritual hero. I, I went on with my work. I showed no emotion about the whole thing. You know, my attitude, when God calls, God calls. When he doesn't call, he doesn't call. Get on with life. I'll be very frank with you. About 10 days later, I woke up one morning and sat up straight in bed. And I'll leave the profanity out. Hmm. I, I shouted out loud, what in the heck happened? I was so sure I had heard God's voice. I have preached for years to people about how to hear God's call. But it didn't work for me. All of those principles and applications that Gail and I had put into this situation, at the end, it ended with a total thud. And uh, I took two or three years climbing out from under that cloud. Wow. Every time I prayed publicly and privately, even though people didn't realize it, the first words of my prayer actually were, God, I'm praying to you, even though I have no idea what your language is, but I'll wow. do the right thing. It took me at least three years. Here's the end of the story, Carrie. About five or eight years later, I came to a realization that was this. If that job had been given to me, I would have said yes, but it would have killed me. Hmm. I was no more fit for that job than the man in the moon. <laughs> it would have killed me. I'd have been, yeah. I would have been broken in three years. But it took me five, six more years to figure that out. So what was a terrible moment of doubt and disappointment and discouragement turned out to be one of the best things that ever happened to me. God saved me. Out of his mercy. That's my yeah. big doubt story. There were others not quite as monumental, but just as real. Uh, I think we've talked about this before, but your book, Reordering or Rebuilding Your Broken World, is uh, one of my favorites that I've read in my time in leadership. And... Um, you know, we live in what a lot of people say is a cancel culture. So you make a mistake, that's it. You're gone, you're done, you're finished forever. Or perhaps you put yourself back in the game too early, right? It's like, well, I made a mistake and here I am, now I'm back and you guys need to forgive me. I just love hearing your voice on restoration 
and on recovering from setbacks. So can you speak into that space? Because uh, I, I don't know of a better voice on that that I've heard than yours. Well, thank you. Obviously, it begins with what you think of God's motion in your life when a bad moment comes. And um, I was at a point, I was in those years, where I had really come alive to the notion of the mercy of God. So here's a God who watches his children sometimes do the dumbest, stupidest, horrible things in the world. And how does he receive them? You could be dramatic of the story of the prodigal son and his father. Um, my favorite story is Peter at the shore in John 21, when Jesus comes out of the fog and says, have you got any fish? And Peter starts swimming like mad to the shoreline because somebody else in the boat has told him that they think it's the Lord. And I've imagined over and over again what was going on in Peter's mind as he swam toward Jesus. Um, you know, I can imagine him saying, I wonder if when I get there, he fires me from being the leader of the disciples. Or will he tell me off and tell me how disappointed he is? Uh, what will Jesus say? Um, and yet he gets there, and I like to visualize the two men locked in a manly embrace, with Peter burying his face in the neck of Christ and just saying over and over again, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And then Jesus offers Peter a return to where he was. That's me. I, I lived and breathed off that story. So God was faithful to me personally in speaking in ways like that out of the stories of the Older Testament, New Testament. Second thing I got to say is um, I have an incredible wife. Hmm. And Gail never doubted that there was a hope in the future if we would just be obedient to the way the Holy Spirit does things. And she never left my side. Uh, we were together in this, and she, even to this day, uh, if Gail talks about some of these things, I will hear her say, and it, in one sense, it, it hurts, but she'll say, our failure our failure, the day we fail. And I'll say, sweetheart, it's not we, it's not I, it's me. No, it's our failure. Well, when you have someone walking alongside of you like that, it makes a big difference. The third thing was friends. I was surrounded by six or seven godly people who would, the words they would put is, well, sometimes Satan wins a battle but he never loses, the, he never wins the, the war. Hmm. And we're gonna win the war on this one. So I made a commitment, I would never make any decision in the near future without them approving it. I would totally submit my life and behavior um, to these men, we call them the angels. And the angels met with us every month for two years. And then I just have to say, in a general sense, the mercy of some wonderful Christian leaders across the country. One of them was a man who's long been in the presence of the Lord now, who was the chairman of the Board of Christianity Today, uh, uh, Clayton Bell. 
Uh, I rarely ever mentioned his name for no particular reason, but Clayton flew all the way from Dallas to our home in New Hampshire. And he sat with us for an entire day. And at one point, with tears in his eyes, he said, Gordon, Gail, you have a big decision to make. You can excuse yourself and deny yourself and complain uh, that some people are not treating you well, and you'll get away with it. Or you can submit yourself to say, you can submit yourself to God and say, Lord, this is a painful moment, but we would like to squeeze this pain for everything you have to teach us. And Clayton Bell said to Gail and me, which of these two choices are you going to make? And we went to our knees weeping and said, we will choose to accept the pain and the consequences if only God at the other end will whisper some new lessons to us. And that was almost like the start of a brand new ministry. I was 45, 46 years of age. And we look back at that point and say, that's the second half of life and that's the best half. Hmm. So it was Gail. It was people like Clayton Bell, it was the six angels, and it was the Holy Spirit himself speaking. And you get that kind of a package working in your life, and you shut up your mouth and listen. One or two good things could happen. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Gordon, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. That's so powerful and meaningful. Number six, be trustworthy and dependable. A person who keeps his or her word, don't make promises you can't keep. How have you learned to do that when, again, there are so many, so many challenges and so many opportunities on your time? We're back to this pleasing element, again, uh-huh. in the life of many Christian leaders. We, we don't, as Gail will often say to me, she'll say, you don't hear yourself. Uh, you need to listen to yourself more when you make some of these promises and commitments. And, and she's absolutely right. But in, in the euphoria of the moment, something deep inside of you is saying, I'm going to get to make another person happy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So in my early years, in my 20s and 30s, and, and maybe even into the first year or two of my 40s, I, I always took on about 20% more than I was conceivably possible to do. And, and one of the favorite things I would do, you know, I'd be standing up in front of Grace Chapel congregation, the service was over, some person would come along that I really, really liked. And we'd talk for a moment and then I would say, you know, we need to get together more often. Yeah. Why don't we try to get uh, lunch? Uh, I'll call you. And the other guy, oh, okay, that's great. I will really look forward to that. And they go on their way. And on the way home, Gail's sitting with me in the car and she'll say, now I heard you tell Jim that you'd like to have lunch with him. Let me tell you what's going on in Jim's life right now. He's on his way home and he's telling his wife, Gordon wants to have lunch with me. He wants to talk with me. He wants my advice. And you know what? Tomorrow morning, you're going to make another lunch date and Tuesday, you're going to make a third lunch date and you're going to forget all about Jim by Wednesday. And he's going to realize a week or 10 days from now, you didn't mean what you said. Gordon's a fibber. How can he trust you when you break your promise? If I heard that from Gail 50, I heard it 5,000 times. 
Don't make promises you can't keep. Your integrity relies upon it. It took me almost 45 years to get that lesson learned. That's why it's in a list of things at 80. <laughs> <laughs> uh, because I, I was just so driven to want to do or say the nice thing. But you, you just have to, and a good person will accept your no with the recognition you're being as honest as you possibly can. It's very true. So it took a long time to learn that, though. All right, number seven, be a spiritual father, mother to teachable people who may someday inherit your responsibilities. I'd love to know some best practices on that. How do you become a spiritual mother or father to people that really will take over for you one day? I wrote an article on call to Christian service or leadership, I think back when I was 64. And uh, it was your typical article you've read a hundred times about how you hear God's call to this, that, or the other thing. Nothing spectacular, just good orthodox treatment of the subject of call. But when I got through with the article and sent it off to the editor of Leadership Journal, I began to think about what I'd written. And I thought, it's been years and years and years since I have thought about my call. My call doesn't play any front, front position. My, my call doesn't play any significant role in my life at all. It's something that I had when I was in my teen years at camp, the campfire, and I haven't really thought about it much since then. Why do we talk so much about call then? So I began to think about it. Does God ever update his calls to his people? Does he freshen a call? Does he change a call? I'd never heard anybody talk about that. I didn't, I didn't know where you look by in the scripture. So I began to pray, Lord, do you ever have fresh brand new calls for people when they're 64? Because I'm tired of the old call. It ain't working anymore. And I prayed that prayer as, as kind of the upfront prayer each morning in my devotions. Some, some weeks later, I went off to Germany to speak at a number of daily pastors' conferences in various German cities. And at the end of several of those days, young German men who spoke English came up to me. And, and one by one, they would say almost this very same thing. You talk to us today like a father does. You talk like a father. And I would say, well, what does that mean? Well, the old German professors and pastors, they shout at us, they scold us, they teach us theology and philosophy, but they never open up their hearts and tell us about themselves. They never tell us where they've hurt, where they've failed, how God's spoken to their life. And that's what you did all day long today. And that's what a father does. Mm -hmm. So I heard that several times, was very thankful, came back to the U.S., went out to California to speak for an Asian pastor's conference, Japanese, Korean, Chinese pastors. And this was a two-day conference. And when I got through, the leader got up to thank me, and he said this. He said, um, all day long today and yesterday, I've been listening to Gordon speak, and I've been on the edge of tears the whole time. He said, "I." I I can tell you the tears weren't because he's a bad speaker. <laughs> but he said, I've been in the edge of tears because I feel like a father has been speaking to me. And so many of us in this room 
don't feel like we have fathers. And in that moment, Carrie, it was like the Holy Spirit fell upon me. And what I heard the Holy Spirit say to me is, you asked for a fresh call, you've got it. Spend the rest of your life just being a father to young men and young women who come along and have questions and want to know what God is saying. That's a great call. It's a great call. And And it fits life in the last 25% of So that's why life is exciting to me to this day, because it's not infrequent that I get out of bed in the morning, and one of the first things I ask myself is the question, and who shall I get to be, who will be I, I get to be a father to today? And when I go back to Germany, so many of the pastors over there are so kind to me, and they'll say, well, Father, we're glad you're back in Germany today. May I have my blessing? <laughs> Gordon, it's, it, it is an anointed calling, like the time that we have spent together. Even our email friendship, you know, we email back and forth a few times a month. It's very, it's very emotional and uh, in, in, in the best possible way, as this conversation is. So I just want to affirm that. Principle number eight, live modestly, stay free of debt, be generous, develop a financial strategy for your future, and be wary of those who try to buy your favor. So we touched a little bit about being raised in the depression generation and stay out of debt and everything. How do you, um, any advice? Uh, I find in the church, pastors are either underpaid or overpaid. There's not a whole lot of middle ground <laughs> there. Let's speak to those who are underpaid. How, and, and I'm sure, you know, ministry did not pay in the 60s and 70s, even what it does today. How did you embrace that principle when times were tight? Well, I think you've raised several bulleted issues there, some of which I honestly cannot fully answer to please everybody. I know that there's an enormous number of pastors out there that are terribly underpaid, yeah. and, and they're really suffering or struggling, and they're doing three jobs. They're driving a school bus, and they're mopping floors um, and spouses that have to work and, and they're trying to mother two or three children at the same time. So it's a mess out there uh, for a lot of, of those kind of people. And God bless them that they're so faithful. Gail was the keeper of the, of the cash in our, in our house from the day we got married. She, she's a very detailed person, very orderly person. And she appreciates, you know, the structure of money. I'm, I'm, the, I'm the one who gets the money, uh, has paid the money for doing ministry, and Gail's the one who does the expenditure of the money, and it works very, very well. Um, in about our third year of marriage, a missionary came to visit us for a weekend, and um, he was incredibly poorly dressed. His sport coat had holes at the elbows. Um, and he's not the kind of guy who would deliberately do that to make an impression. Hmm. But I said to Gail somewhere during the weekend, we've got to buy this man a new sport coat. They only cost $39 in those days. And Gail came back to me and she said, we, we can't do it. We, we're up to next year's, we've spent next week's paycheck already. Um, but for some way that I've never yet figured out, she found the money. And uh, before that missionary left us on Monday, he was wearing a brand new, rather cheap, but not, not nice uh, sport coat. And that had an incredible effect upon me. I had heard God's leadership 
and we had responded. And we sat down and I said to Gail, I think I was the one that said it, we have got to come up with a lifelong strategy as to how we're going to manage money because I don't want the Holy Spirit ever again to nudge me about being generous and we can't afford to do it. So we set out four or five principles. One, we would live at 80% of our income, no matter what that cost us. Two, we would put money away every month for our, here it goes, retirement. Mm -hmm. Three, we would put money away so that our children would get a debt-free college education. Four, we would be as generous as we possibly could on a regular basis to situations around us. Um, I guess I mentioned them all. Uh, Stay out of debt. Oh, and don't buy anything you can't pay for within 31 days, maybe with the exception of a necessary car or a house mortgage, if that would come along. But otherwise, it was going to be a cash deal. We've lived that way, Carrie, now for 57 years. Wow. We have never gone to bed worrying about money. Uh, Not because we're wealthy. We just haven't put ourselves up to the stretch zone that so many young people do today. I'll tell you one other, there was one other decision we made. We would not opt out of social security. Ah, yeah. And particularly in those days, all of us guys in my generation, the government was giving us this option to opt out of paying social security payments as clergy people. And at the beginning, I did opt out. And then I started writing books. And the Internal Revenue Service said, we'll give you, um, we'll give you your privilege for the pastoring, but you've got to pay Social Security tax for writing and for outside speaking. So I completed the full course of Social Security payments down through all the years. And that's one of the best things that ever happened to me. I don't care where you are on the aisle politically. Social Security is good. And there are thousands of older pastors today who are dying financially because they didn't take Social Security. Mm. And God saved us, you could say, in that way. So we have lived strategically. And it's meant that many, many, many times we have said no to things that our peers have gone off and bought. Because if we couldn't pay cash for it, we weren't going to do it or buy it. And um, I just think that pastors, Christian leaders need to be very uh, careful about this. The way you handle your money is one of the ways your congregation judges you. They notice the, the kind of clothing we wear, the kind of house we buy, the model car we buy. And we can do all we want saying it's none of their business. But if you're going to be a pastor, this is Gordon speaking, it is to some extent their business. Yeah, because it's a statement about how you live and how important material things are to you. So uh, that's that's why that point is in there. It's all of our life we we've lived pretty carefully according to those three uh, financial principles. Our children graduated debt free from college. We're we're into years where we're not earning a definite income. It's all worked out beautifully. Now where we go from these days, that's God's problem. <laughs> <laughs> uh, wow. I mean, we could literally spend five hours talking about these things, which will probably set up the next conversation. But I do want to, before we move on, talk about be wary of those who try to buy your favor. 
Can you expand on that? How did, how did, how did that show up? How does that show up? It shows up in almost every situation, unless maybe you're in a church or an organization where, where everybody is desperately poor. Hmm. But there are always people in any collection or, or crowd of folks who have more than other people do, and they can afford to do things that no one else can afford to do. It's kind of like the Corinthian situation. Right. And there, there have always been a few in our lives from the very beginning who, were, who had greater financial means, and they didn't mind to throw it around. Um, I remember a, a little club of people in an earlier church that I pastored in another part of the country and compared to the rest of the congregation, they were, they were pretty well off. And every Sunday night, we were Baptists, we'd have the evening service. And then this group would go to one of their homes, and they would eat late into the evening. Uh, they might have wanted, as well have been alcoholics, the way they consumed their food. But the table would always be sent, set with the most beautiful foods and expensive foods. And they would invite Gail and me to join them on these Sunday nights after church. And you know, here we are, a young couple, 29, 30, 31 years of age. And we thought it was wonderful that this group was, was inviting Gail and Gordon. And the mm -hmm. food was so good. And the laughter of the jokes was great. But you know what? We discovered one day that whenever we needed people like that to make an extra commitment in the life of the church, not just money, but to do things and and fill responsibilities, these people could never be counted on. Hmm. There was no growth. There was no depth of commitment. The church was just a social situation um, for them to meet over. And finally, Gail and I said to ourselves, we've really got to get out of this. We need to be spending our time with people who are teachable and really want to be near us for the reasons we came to this church. But they were some of the first people who fit that category. The, I'll just get to tell you one more. I think of a company president who was fabulously wealthy, and uh, he was used to commanding the situation every place around him. His company, which was big, the church, the neighborhood, the community, everybody did what this man wanted. And he would call me about one o'clock or two o'clock on Saturday afternoon, and he, would, he had a deep voice. Gordon, he'd say, I can still hear, Gordon, uh, why don't you and the missus come on over for dinner tonight? I've got some really thick steaks. You're going to love them. And you couldn't say no. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so we'd go. And the steaks were incredible. You know, they, they, I just can't describe them to you, the greatest steaks you could ever imagine on the barbecue. And he was good at what he did. And then while we were eating, he would tell me how to run the church. You know, you got to do more of this. You got to say no to that person. You you shouldn't be doing this whatsoever. And you shouldn't have mentioned that in your sermon. And I would take it all in. Why? Because he had bought the privilege. And he was a love. I love this man. And I, I think he, in his own way, was a godly man. But I would drive home Saturday night after Saturday night, pounding the steering wheel in frustration that I had allowed him to get into my heart that night when I had to preach the next morning. Yeah, yeah. How did you learn to say no eventually? How did you learn to spot that and then say, hey, thanks so much, but we have dinner plans? I think I just got busy doing other things on Saturday nights. <laughs> just diplomatically, I'm sorry I can't come. You know, we have a commitment this evening. 
And we just slowed the whole thing down little bit by little. And I think he got the message. Yeah, yeah. Expect to reorganize your inner life every seven to 10 years. Why seven to 10? It's a nice round number. <laughs> uh, no, there, there is some genius to it. Um, it's my theory that as we move up, move up from life from childhood, age 10 or 12, up, that, that life goes through basic definitional changes in 10-year increments. You know, from 12 to yeah. about 21, you're going. You've been. You're getting hit by puberty, and you're you're in your last half of your flight to formal education. So things between 12 and 21 are pretty continuous, and then maybe past 21, 22, life changes. Now you're thinking career. You're thinking the possibility of spouse. In your 30s, you're thinking about children, about house mortgages car payments. In your 40s, you're asking the question, how am I doing and why isn't life going exactly like I expected? In your 50s, the question's coming, um, uh, what do I do with the second half of my life? In your 60s, it's how long can I keep doing the things that have defined me? In your 70s, how do I live with all the loss that I'm facing as my friends are dying off? In your 80s, how close am I to heaven's door? Um, so your spiritual life is going to change as it corresponds to each of those questions and those decades. You know, um, let me put it this way. One of the parts of a spiritual life are the heroes you have. When I was in my teens and 20s, my heroes would have been Joseph, Daniel, Esther, you know, these flashy young people with lots of vision and strength and all that my friends at 80 are Caleb, Anna and Simeon, Zechariah and Elizabeth, the aged Paul. I love those guys, but, but they're considerably older. So the heroes I'm following as the years go by have changed uh, because of the vicissitudes of life. Um, even this whole area of, of sexual yeah, sins, like sexual temptation, Talk to young people in their teens and 20s, and they'll tell you that, that they're thinking about these temptations all the time. Mm -hmm. Listen to any pastor who's preaching to younger people. When he or she brings up the subject of sin, it's almost always sexual. But try talking about that to 75-year-olds. <laughs> yeah. Now the issues have changed. What are the sins of a 75-year-old? Could be that that person struggles with jealousy, with anger, with unresolved regrets, fear, things that you never thought about when you were 32. So my temptations, my heroes are changing. Um, the things I pray for uh, and the way I pray is changing all along the line. The places I go to the Bible for solace, and for direction are going to change. So I've become an advocate in my own journey that every seven to eight years, there comes that major reassessment moment when you really have to, in effect, say to Jesus, how are we doing? And what needs to change? And what do I need to alter in my life so I am a faithful person at this age? That's what's all under that, that principle. And, 
and it really makes a, a lot of sense to me. I started as a Baptist when I was a kid because my father was a Baptist. If he'd been a Presbyterian, I guess I would have been a Presbyterian. But I started out a Baptist. If I had life to do all over again right now, if someone said, make any changes in your life you want, I wouldn't be a Baptist. Because be? I, I would probably be a Quaker or an Anglican. Because as the years have gone by, I've, I've inherited this hunger for the liturgical and the truth that's embedded in the ancient prayers and creeds. Um, the dignity of a, of a good liturgical service, or the Quakers uh, sitting in silence and letting God speak to each other, you know, in various ways. The Quaker view of learning, the Quaker view of, of um, mixing it up in this world and making a difference at the highest possible level. I really admire that. I didn't get that stuff when I was a kid in, in the Baptist church. Then it was all about, and I'm very thankful, it was all about Jesus, mm. being faithful to Jesus, talking about Jesus, singing to Jesus. So life has changed for me. And even in my spiritual life, my tastes in worship and devotion has um, migrated as the years are going by. I wanted to ask you, it's sort of a question under the question, but when you think about recalibrating every seven to 10 years, you know, in my mid-50s, I'm noticing some big shifts over the decades, you know, 20s, 30s, 40s, now 50s. How does wisdom work? How I, I would consider you to be a, a sage, someone who is able to connect the dots. How has that changed and evolved over the decades for you, wisdom? It's interesting. This is kind of a joke, but when I was a young person, and I'm sure it's true for you, people will come up and say, you're so smart. You're so smart. Then when you get to be old, they say, you're so wise. <laughs> and I keep asking myself, what's the difference and how did I get from smart to wise? <laughs> Interesting question. I think as you grow up through the years, at least, again, this is Gordon speaking, by mid midlife, you begin to realize you can't do spiritual life alone. Hmm. And I, that's what I did for the first 20, 30 years of my adult Christian faith. I did it alone for the most part. Uh, and then in very vulnerable moments, I began to realize I need some capital F friends who will walk alongside of me as we walk with God together and who will mediate to me what they hear God saying in my life as I mediate back to them. So, so as I get older, I realize that wisdom is a, is a, is a community thing. The wise leaders of the village in society, worship in society, in society, in the tribal societies, the wise men never operate alone. Mm. They, they have a, a collective of people who sit in the gates of the city and, um, and, and, and brood on, on the wise things. And that, that took me about 45 years to learn. So I, I really value relationships where when you're with a particular person, the conversation is elevated to things that generate wisdom and insight. Um, and you have to go for it like a dog goes to red meat. That was an interesting paradigm, wasn't it? That is a really interesting paradigm. What does that mean? <laughs> well, I won't back away from it because I, as I get older, I, I find my hunger for wisdom increases all the time. Wow. I, I want every person I meet to 
Tell me their story. I want to know what's hot on their plate today in terms of learning. Um, what, what are they curious about? What are they struggling with? Uh, that, that's been a part of my older years. I, I want to accumulate the wisdom that comes out of connections like that. Hmm. Okay. Uh, number 10, receive compliments, criticism, and counsel with humility and appreciation. Avoid whining, complaining, self-pity. Assume that there is at least a grain of truth in the things critics say about you and your work. Well, we could literally spend an hour on this, but uh, please walk us through. Can, can I focus on self-pity? That one's been a tough one for me. I can end up in the self-pity pit too often. Well, again, I would tie it back to something we've already mentioned two or three times, and that's the pastoral temperament. For anybody who knows Myers-Briggs, um, I'm an INFP. I wouldn't be surprised if you're close to that, but I could. I'm an ENFP, but almost bordering I these days. Yeah. Gail, who's a, a, a real student of, of Myers-Briggs, she's taken all the testings and stuff. She tells me that a huge percentage of the pastoral population are NFPs. Really? Yeah, they migrate toward this. It's because it's all about people. It's all about feelings. It's all about correcting faults and, and you know, getting back on the straight and narrow road. Uh, where, where my father would have been probably an ENTJ. You know, uh, he comes out of an engineering family line that I must have disgraced. But, um, you know, for him, it's putting the pieces of doctrine together, uh, figuring out people's problems and giving them the solution, just like that. It drove me nuts because he had this fix-it mentality in that, in that way. But we pastors, um, we care too much. And so when somebody says something that's hurtful or we hear about gossip that's been projected in our direction, it, it immediately stabs into the deeper parts of us. Yeah. And, and Because we want people to love us, to, to respond to our ministry and know that we care for them. And when we find out it's not that way, it hurts like everything. Yeah. So you, it's something you have to beat at all the time. And if you're a couple, a husband and wife, and both have the same temperament in this area, it can, it can often be devastating because one of you needs to be able to pull the other out of those dark moments. No, that's a good point. Anything else on hearing the truth from your critics? Yeah, the, the founder of The Navigators was a man by the name of Dawson Trotman. And I had the privilege of knowing him very briefly in his later years. He died at uh, Word of Life Camp here in New York State, and here up in the New England area. But Dawson Trotman had, had a statement which Gail and I heard way, way back, and it was this. In, inside of every criticism, legitimate or illegitimate, is a grain of truth. Assume that grain of truth and look for it. Well, you see what that did? That reverses your perspective because when I was young, my assumption often was you disagree with me, one of us is right, and one of us is wrong. But what if I start now with the assumption, okay, I'm hearing you, you're hearing me. And in the things that we say to each other in the converse of it all, you may have a truth I need to hear. It may not be as big as you wished it was, but it's there. And if I find it, I'm going to go away a better person. 
So Gail and I adopted this principle, and she reminds me of it all the time. Always in a conversation, look for the grain of truth. Everybody has something God has planted in them for you. So as long as I can keep repeating that to myself, I'm able to deal with most conflict. Uh, there are the extreme ones where you finally have to say this is going nowhere. But you can really take in a lot of conflict if you have convinced yourself that the grain of truth is there to be found. And if you get it, you will profit from it. Hmm. Okay, this one intrigued me. Stay number 11, stay alert for the evils and temptations embedded in institutional life. What are the evils and temptations embedded in institutional life? Well, first of all, ask the men that built the Tower of Babel. They were trying to form a corporation that would build something that God was not welcome to. And so when God walks among them and sees what they're trying to do, he curses their effort by giving them all individual or diverse languages. And so they stop the work and they scatter in all four directions because they can't communicate. Right. If you think about it, I don't want to overdo this point, but if you think about it, one of the greatest problems in all institutions and organizations is the failure to purely communicate. Hmm. It leads to a lot of our mistakes, our misunderstandings, our conflicts, because we just didn't say or do what was absolutely necessary for the other person to get the point. Yeah. So I often call that story in Genesis 11, the curse of Babel. And I have formed this theory, if you please, that every time two or more people connect with each other for any purpose, marriage, family, church, business, army, uh, anytime two people come together for any period of time, before long, something evil is likely to burst out from the innards of that connection and threaten the organization. Hmm. You could say that about marriages. Oh, yeah. You know, a, a man and a woman walk the aisle and you watch them holding hands and kissing at the end, loving each other. and It's their perfection. But if you go back 10 years, you'll discover, and go forward another 10 years, you'll discover that this relationship has been pounded in all sorts of ways and, and good ones have, have outlasted the pounding. Others have capitulated. But every relationship has flaws in it. And good management, good leadership is looking and assuming that there are probably flaws in this organization and I must always be aware of when they might show themselves and what I as a leader would do to bring it under control. Those people at, at Babel, they didn't know that if they'd sent their workers off to Harvard Business School, they could have solved all their problems. Uh, but they didn't do that. Uh, but that's my, I, I think that one of the marks of Christian leadership is the Christian leader is not negative, but he or she is always looking at the organization, asking the question, uh, when will some of the flaws show and how will we deal with them? So it's almost a, a vigilance, a state of like alertness that you're watching for this. That's or helpful. Put it another, another way, Carrie. We have no problem as evangelicals believing that in the heart of every person is an old nature. And in devotion and worship, we're looking for the old nature to work its way out. <laughs> yeah. 
if you have an old nature as a human being, why can't an organization of many human beings also have an old nature? Is this not what happened to the temple in Jerusalem? Yeah. It had an old nature, and it went from what it was under Solomon to being corrupted as the years went by. Oh, that's so good. Here's Israel. Uh, when Moses leads them out of Egypt, the old nature is there. You might say the whole Older Testament is really about Israel dealing with its old nature uh, and its the capitulation to slavery and what that had done to them. So that it's it's a redemptive whole testament leading toward the cross because we've got these issues to deal with. Wow. Okay. That's something to really think about and kind of encouraging in, in the same way. Like this is this is something you are just wrestling with as long as you're alive. All right. So number 12, uh, be quick to say with sincerity, thank you. Well done. I'm sorry. I forgive you. And how can I help? Um, why those five? Why did you pick those five as one of your principles? Well, to be honest, you know, I've been fooling with this piece of paper we're working with for about a year now. It's about a year ago that I did the first draft of it. And I have put these five to the test in my mind over and over and over again. Is there more? Yeah. Is there too many? But they rep- And the answer is so far, I haven't found any. What they represented to, represented to me is... They are the five inner core transactions in all relationships. And if any one of them is missing, uh, you get a boss who doesn't know how to say, I'm sorry. Uh, you, you work for a person who never says, well done. Hmm. And you go home every night asking, do I have any value to this organization, to that person? If they don't say, well done, if someone doesn't say, I'm sorry, when there's been a, an abrasion in the relationship, if someone doesn't say thank you, hmm. you're left high and dry to know whether you have any contribution to make to that situation. So I, I, I've kept test firing these five over and over and over again. And I keep coming back and saying, no, every one of them belongs there. And to the extent that you neglect to give one of them to the people around you on a regular basis, you have a hole in your organization. No, that's really true. I mean, I kind of asked the question, not realizing there would be such a powerful answer behind it. But you're absolutely right. And, you know, somebody just says thank you, but never really affirms you as whether the quality of your work was good or apologizes or even asks you how they can help. That's a, that's, that's a fascinating list. Um, what has made you not want to say those things over the course of your life? I would, re, I would resist saying that, and, and, it, and it, it happens more than once, because to compliment or praise you might take something away from me. Ah. Um, you know, I may be giving you a leg up on me, especially if I smell some competition between the two of us. I'd like to keep pushing you down so that <laughs> I can go up. Yeah. And, uh, you know, when I was young, I, I probably was guilty of that a lot of times. And uh, my mentor, Dr. Grounds, would have been one of those that would have taught me a better way. Um, always be looking for the thing you can find in another person that's worth praising. Gail often says, hold the crown six inches above someone's head so they can grow up into it. 
That I believe is a Quaker statement, by the way. Uh, That's a great statement. It's a, these five, uh, as I have exercised them at best I could in my own life, have made a huge, huge difference. In our home, if you live here very often, you become a person addicted to giving thank yous out. When I married Gail, I discovered in the first week of our marriage that there were 30 to 35 thank you notes going out of our house every week. Gail thanks everybody. Wow. You know, I'll look over her shoulder and she'll be, she'll be writing a letter to the usher in our church. Dear Joe, the other day in church, I was watching as you escorted Mrs. So-and-so, who's 90 years of age, to her seat. I was so impressed with how tender you were to her and how you stayed and paid attention to her until she was thoroughly comfortable. I wanted to say thank you, Gail. That's typical of the letters that go to this day, to this very day. Gail spends time writing thank you notes or affirmational notes to people. So if you're going to live here, you have to do it. So I do it, not as much as she. People will, I'll, I'll finish this. People have come up and they'll, they'll take out their, their billfold like this. And they'll say, I want you to see something. They'll open up their billfold and here will be a yellow piece of paper or card. And they will say, Gail wrote this to me 10 years ago. And I, I've kept it in my billfold all these years. Whenever I need a word of encouragement, I take it out and reread it. Wow. I hear this all the time, Carrie. And, and it's made me realize that in the Christian world, and Paul does this to the Colossians five times, being thankful, overflowing in thanksgiving, thanking, thanking. I thank the Lord my God. Thanking is one of the most Christian acts there is. <laughs> But we don't teach each other to do it, and we don't respond as well as we should. So it becomes a lost art for some people. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I'm going to pay attention to those five. Number 13, and we talked about mentorship and the voices in your life, but I want to drill down on it. Always maintain a relationship with one or two mentors who can aid you in hearing God's voice. Uh, You talk about the angels, you talk about the two or three people that you'll do your recalibration with and check in with. How do you select those people, Gordon? What do you look for? Well, um, and I'm not trying to be funny when I say this. How did you select your wife? (laughs) Basically, you dated her. You knew knew some women and you had a list. Uh, I once said to Gail, I'll have you know when I was at college, I had many many, many women coming after me. And she, and she said, I can understand the high turnover. Uh, <laughs> um, you, can, you can erase that. Uh, you date. You, you are always, in, in terms of men as mentors, you look at the men around you and over a period of time, you select out of your mind 10 or 12 of them that have qualities and traits that you would like to learn from and know about, and you invite them for breakfast, you say something like, you know, could I ask you a few questions? I'm wondering about, you seem to have it all put together in this area. Well, sure. And the conversation goes, and at the end of it, you're saying to yourself, would I like to meet this guy again? If so, could we get together again for breakfast in another month? I'd be glad to pay the bill. As the weeks go by and you have these times, a relationship develops. You don't say to this guy, would you be my mentor? Here hmm. to death. You just do mentoring one way or the other. And maybe a year and a half down the line, the other guy says, you and I have something going here, don't we? 
I love these. I look forward to these dates every fourth Saturday of the month. And that's, that's the way it works. You, you do it the same way you would want to get a relationship going with the woman you marry. Um, my first, I, I had, well, I probably have had a hundred mentors if you start picking, you know, very detailed ones. But I have a piece I've written, I don't think you've seen it, called Nine Who Stood Out, where I've listed and described the nine top mentors in my life. The first one came along when I was four and five years old. I haven't seen that piece. Well, I'd be glad to send it to you. I would love to get it. Yep. But but those those nine mentors and, and, and one of the two of the nine was that couple I told you about that I went to at their house. They were the ones who taught me marriage. There was another man who taught me how to be a gentleman. I I remember that story. That's great. Yeah. There's a third guy that taught me how to be something of a scholar. And there's another guy who taught me dignity and and, uh, discipline. And then there's my grandmother who teaches me how to get around in New York City and how to be compassionate in praying for the children of Germany in World War II. And then there's the, well, it goes on like that. But each one of these was a mentoring relationship that fit the time I was in at that moment. Now all my mentors are gone, except I, I think of Gail as a mentor sometimes. Uh, the other rest, the rest are, as they say, in glory. Hmm. Each one of them left something in me from which I build off of every day of my life. And uh, I'm terribly thankful for them all. How do you deal with the death of your friends? How do I the death deal with the death of your friends? You reminded me of early in my ministry. I was like 30, 31. I just moved up here. Churches were really small. There's a gentleman, maybe 78 years old. His name's Walter. We're standing by the graveside one day. And he looked at me and he just said, you're so young. And he said, all my friends are in there. And he pointed to the tombstone. I've never forgotten that. What's that like? How do you deal with that? I understand that. My friends are all dying. And um, it leaves you with a bit of loneliness. Um, It leaves you uh, kind of vulnerable. Uh, I find myself saying every once in a while, gee, I'd really love to talk to so-and-so about that. I wonder what he would say. And... um, and so you have this moment of nostalgia, of, of pain. And um, life can get very serious for a while because you, you know, I don't, people don't like me to say this sometimes, but I'm not far from that. Hmm. And statistically, Gail and I are now in a box where in the next four years, people our age die. And uh, so you, you thank God When we go to bed at night, we take turns praying. We always thank God he's given us one more day. And if he will, would he give us one more tomorrow to do what he wants us to do? So, um, you know, the greatest fear, if you you love your spouse as much as I love my my Gail, the thought that one of these days one of us is going to leave the other, your brain can't get around it. It's a a thought that's out of control. And And you feel the fear of it. What would it be like to be in this house if she wasn't around the corner? But apparently people have been facing this for millions of years and, uh, and it's, it's doable. So we just, as Gail would say, if she was sitting here with us, she would say something like, 
you just got to hold everything loosely. And in a sense, you even have to hold the one you love the most loosely too, because one day God's going to take one of us. I would think that gets harder. Tony and I have talked about it a little bit. And uh, I'll say to her, there's all kinds, there's songs I'll never be able to listen to again. There's food I can't have because it would remind me too much of the time we spent together. I, I can't imagine that intensifying over time. Yeah, you hear widows and widowers who will say, you know, I, I keep expecting them to come right around the corner. Or I'm in the shopping mall and I look ahead about 50 feet and I'm sure that they're right up ahead and I can see them. Mm. Or they'll say, I can't wait to get home and tell Gail. Mm. So you know, God didn't make us to die. <laughs> it's, it's, the, it's the first major place where you're totally out of control with the experience. Um, I cannot control the messenger of death. Thank you. Well, um, master the art of asking the kind of penetrating questions that open someone's heart. I love your curiosity, Gordon. We've talked about this before. Just the art of question asking seems to be dying. Um, How do you form a penetrating question? That's a really good question. And I, I'm not sure I, I'm adequate to the answer at all. I, you know, that, that I do it, I feel like I do it, do it, and do it reasonably well. It's because I've practiced and because I think it's so intuitive. Uh, again, my mentor, Dr. Grounds, I watched him ask these questions of people down through the years to strangers, to the waitress who came to bring our coffee to the table. He had just the perfect question to open her up as she put the coffee down on the table where most people would ignore her. Uh, He would have just the perfect thing to say. And as I watched him, I began to realize that he was like a surgeon. He was digging down into a person at the right speed in the right place. He was going from one question to another. And he was always watching, for example, where the question's making that person feel uncomfortable. Then you stop. If they seem to welcome the question and enjoy reflecting on it, you keep going deeper. I've noticed, for example, when I when I talk with people and I unleash questions, you know that something good is happening when they'll say something like this. Boy, you really ask good questions. Hmm. Or, yeah. wow, nobody's ever asked me that before. Uh, I've never thought about that. When you get those kind of responses, um, this person is welcoming, welcoming you to a place that's nearer to their heart. They're inviting your digging because you're teaching them things about themselves. Uh, you're also letting them know that they're valuable as human beings and that you want to know them better. You, don't, you just don't want to know the surface and what model of car do you drive? Who do you root for in baseball season? So now you're going to ask questions, and you know, and, and this is a pretty deep one, um, and I would ask it mainly of a man. Have you ever had your heart broken? Mm-hmm. Do you ever look back at a time when God was so real to you that you'll never forget it? Speculative um, questions of that type, and it gives people a lot of wiggle room 
you know, to go deeper or to, you know, to, to back away. I rarely meet people who want to back away. Hmm. Uh, people are fascinated when you show interest in their lives because not many people do. And I feel, Gail and I both feel badly about this among Christians because uh, we often will, uh, you know, we'll go to a, a gathering some evening and on the way home, Gail will say to me or I'll say to her, anybody ask you any questions tonight? No, no, nobody asked anything. I just spent my night asking them. And, um, and what it says to both of us is there are very few people who know how to ask questions, or secondly, they're interested enough to ask the question. They just want to stay on the surface level. So we've we've tried to work hard on this. You've you've got a list of questions like, uh, one of my favorites, and it it sounds bizarre, tell me the story of your whole life in four minutes. That's a great question. Yeah, people will do exactly what you did. They burst out into laughter. They'll say, four minutes? Are you kidding? And then you know what? Their mind immediately begins to run. And within a minute or two, they'll tell you four or five bullet points that encapsulize their whole life. Well, I lost my father at the age of seven. You did? What was that like? What did that do to you? Well, my mother made the mistake of saying I had to be the man of the family. And I've been living with that burden ever since. Hmm. So that's, you know, you're leaping step by step into areas of the heart where this person may never have talked about this before. Gordon, when we talk about this, it just makes me feel like we are hanging on to something that perhaps we're in danger of losing in our culture. And, uh, this whole art of question asking, of truly being interested in the other rather than ourselves, of curiosity. Any words to young leaders who are watching or listening who would say, this almost seems like a foreign land you're taking me into? Where would they start with, uh, with asking great questions? Because I think you're so right. Uh, the first place I guess I need to go back is to Dr. Sweet's slow medicine. Mm. Uh, if you want to be a person who's known for being interested in other people, like my friend, Dr. Grounds, you're going to have to give something up. You can't keep cramming life with more and more things to do and then say, oh, I think I'll add this one more thing. Something down here has to go. And that's not going to be easy because this will be a sacrificial act down here, most likely. But if you want to be a pastor, a priest to people, then you have to have a priestly calendar. And you have to be willing, you know, when you ask a Marilyn Rosenfall something about how she's doing, you've got to stop then and hear her answer. You can't blow her off like I tried to. So... It, it starts with, do I have time to stop and talk to people? Secondly, who are the people that I could benefit the most by talking to them? Then what questions will I ask and how will I deal with the answers? Because I may be surprised with some of the answers I get. But we, ought, we ought to be teaching, Pat. We ought to have a whole course on question asking in seminaries. Yes. Uh, maybe there's a bigger thought here, you know, a whole course on 
how do you dig into people's lives so that they will show you the self that um, Jesus wants you to know? Uh, but most people will stay on the surface. Well, one of the things I wonder, Gordon, if it's tied to it, is just quantity of time. You know, here we are two hours into this conversation at this point. Two hours? Yeah. But it's unhurried. It's unrushed. It's focused. There's nothing going on in the background in your room, in my room. And how often do we actually get to that point these days? Do you think that there is something about an unhurriedness, a focus, a lack of distraction that is critical to this? Yeah, I, I think one more thing, too. We're going to have to be content to have smaller churches. Hmm. Um, you can't tell me that the majority of people going to a huge mega church really feel heard when the program's over. It's, there's something good about it. Well, you led one, right? Like, And I loved it. I loved ministry. But I can't begin to tell you how many times Gail and I would walk across the parking lot at the end of the third service on Sunday morning. And one of us would say to the other person, the other one, you know anybody today? Hmm. No? And I, I, Carrie, I would stand at the back door sometimes and shake maybe eight or nine hundred hands and not know one name. I know that feeling, yeah. Now, I knew the core of the church. You know, it, it took about, I'm guessing, of the 700 people to run our church on a given Sunday. I knew most of those people, but it was it were the other hundreds and hundreds that came and heard you preach, sang the songs, and walked out the door the minute the benediction was pronounced. And they stay for one to three, four years, and then they're on their way. And who knows what that's going to mean when the church doors open up in this season of time. Hmm. You know, how, how have the loyalties of people sorted out during these many weeks? Um, the, 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 we, I, I am hoping there's a whole series of strategic conversations that come out of this time with the, with the virus. That people are going to sit down and ask themselves the question, what has Zoom taught us and how has that changed us? And where will it take its place in the new church? What have we learned about people's choice of music? What have we learned about what's important to preach about in a time like this when life is so frantic? We have got to bring some lessons, pull them out of this time, and sit in places where time is not a factor and ask ourselves, did God mean for this to be a game changer of a period of time? You know, when, when Luther came up with the... Uh, the, the printed text from the printing press and establish this great idea of justification by faith. The world went through a 500-year storm. When John Wesley discovered longitude and latitude and changed the ability of missionaries to go around the world and preach the gospel, we got the modern missionary movement. When we found the automobile, when we found the radio television coming, when we found their interstate highway system, it was a game changer. And, the, and, and something changed and we've never gone back. Now we need to ask the question, what's the game changer in 2020? 
when we come out of this thing. What are the questions you would be asking? The first question, well, I think the first question I'd want to know is, what does satisfying worship look like to God and to God's people? I think we've turned worship too much into an entertainment format in the last 25 years. Um, One of my favorite little verses in the Bible is the comment that's made between the two disciples on the road to Emmaus when Jesus disappears and they've had communion with him. And one of them says to the other, didn't our hearts burn within us when he spoke to us? What does a burning heart look like or sound like? Hmm. When was the last time you went any place with a gathering of believers and you felt your heart burn because the song was sung in a certain way? And I'm not just being for old hymns. Or the pastor unloaded a sermon that was so full of the Spirit of God that you just sat there in awe, taking in every word. Or a prayer. Um, how many times does that happen in a lifetime these days? Yeah. So yeah. I'd want to know, what has this period of time taught us about worship and our connection with God? What's it taught us about the practice of koinonia, fellowship and community? I have a feeling that one is going to be a biggie. How so? Well, we, we've gone through now... How many weeks without going into our sanctuaries? Yeah, it's pushing 12, 15. Well, a lot of us are discovering that we could go on as Christians without a sanctuary. (laughs) Yes. Okay. Um, You know, I hope that doesn't happen. But what if it did? Yeah. What, What if the government says you can't open up these church doors fully until the end of the year? What will it do to the habit patterns of people when it comes to going on Sunday to worship? Can we get more out of a small group of 10 or 12 people? And will there be a marriage of Zoom technology with people in local groups sharing life together? Solve a lot of problems, including the babysitting problem. Yeah. So that's something. This one may not be welcome, but I think... I think this period of time is going to change our theology. And just as has happened, you know, in Luther's day, in France, St. Francis day, in Patrick's day, in Wesley's day, um, we're going to come out of this with a new way of saying the gospel. You know, Billy Graham's way of saying the gospel doesn't work anymore. Bill Bright's doesn't work anymore. So get ready for something new. How would you how would you recalibrate that? I had a chance to talk to Tim Keller earlier this year, and he said if he was starting over again, he would frame everything around identity because he thinks identity is so important. Identity is our defining characteristic. How do you think we will rearticulate the gospel? Oh, whatever Tim Keller says is right. Uh, He's one of the smartest guys I know. Oh my gosh, I'll tell you. It's crazy. But no, he had he had the same point. And I think you're right that sometimes the framework in which we 
cast vision. And Paul uses multiple metaphors for the gospel in the New Testament. I mean, we have from one writer um, numerous ways of, of, of phrasing it depending on his audience. So if you were, I'd love to pose that question. If you were starting, you're preaching over again, how would you articulate the gospel differently? I really wish I had time to think of a good answer to a good question. Um, I was with a, a man talking to a man yesterday who is the president of, well, walk through the Bible. Yeah. And by the way, he is a friend of yours, if I remember right. But, but anyway, we were talking about the value of the story yeah. from the gospel. And um, I, for one, have always been a storyteller and think everybody else should be, that, that the gospel trans, transits across cultural lines through story form. Um, Keller's comment about identity is probably right. I, I'm not sure I know what he means totally by identity. For me, the key word would be community. Mm. Um, that, that, that the Christian journey is, is not a journey alone. It's, it's a journey in fellowship with us. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved and thy house. Those last two or three words have been ignored by evangelicals for many, many years because we've put our emphasis on the, the individual coming to Jesus. But if you read history, people came to Jesus in groups in those first years. And, uh, you know, a family came to Christ. A tribe or a village came to Christ. I read Vincent Donovan's book, Christianity Rediscovered, which is about 20 years old, but still a very informative book, talking about you know, that much of Christianity is lived in concert with other people. Hmm. And... Uh, We've put too much of an individual emphasis upon it. I would, I would, I would say that's very accurate. No, thank you, thank you for going there. And then number fifteen, retreat to the cross regularly. Express your appreciations. Name your sins. Pray for the world. Listen to God's calls to do things that are bigger than you. Um, I'd love for you to drill down on that. Go back to the cross. I feel like we've. We've been bumping up against that throughout this conversation. Um, well, one, one thing I thought you might say toward the beginning of our conversation, you didn't, and that's not a problem, but um, I thought you might ask me, what's the order of these 15? You know, no, that would have been a good question. A better interviewer would have gotten that. So you tell me, what is the order of the 15, Gordon? That's and, great. And, and the answer back is purposely there is no order. <laughs> totally random. Trick question. There you go. If there's an exception, it comes in number 15, which I think, you know, eclipses all the other 14. It's, yeah. it's my way of saying, you know, ultimately this is all about Jesus. Hmm. So I've got to find the core way I approach Jesus on a regular basis. And I left that to last. And I, I chose deliberately a few words that are not normally used just to bring some freshness to the concept, like retreat to the cross. Yeah. You know, someone has to digest that for a moment to see what it means. I've never, a lot of people would say, I've never thought about going into my devotional life as retreating to the cross. Isn't that awfully Catholic? But I love the notion in my mind of, of, of approaching the cross on a regular basis. And, um, May I put it this way? 
I've been converted over and over and over again at the foot of the cross. Hmm. Renewed my conversion, if you please. Just like I renew my marriage to Gail on a regular basis. So retreating to the cross is a way of saying, I'm stepping out of the noise of culture and life and conflict and dissonance. I'm going to the quiet place where the Savior will meet me. And then express your appreciations. I could have said something like, say more thank yous. But I, I was, I see in the New Testament, particularly from Paul on a number of occasions, his emphasis upon thanksgiving. Yeah. Uh, you have this interesting verse in Colossians chapter 2. As you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him that you, you might be, so walk in him as you have been taught, that you might be rooted, rooted, grounded, structured, and overflowing with thanksgiving. I really blew the verse. I have, usually have it memorized. Why did he tack on that fourth one? The first three make a beautiful, sweet three-point sermon. Rooted, built up, um, structured in the faith. I can understand that. Then he goes overflowing with thanksgiving. And I can only think he's thinking about the metaphor that the river in Colossae probably overflowed every spring. Hmm. So he's got that word picture as something overflowing. And he then applies the word picture to being thankful. Overflow in thanksgiving. Thank people far more than they, they deserve. And I, I can only then say, I bet that Paul is writing that because they weren't very thankful people. Yeah. You know, they were, maybe they were greedy people. They were dishonest people. But something was there that makes, and compels Paul to say four or five times in the book of Colossians, be thankful, be thankful, be thankful. Hmm. Be an important part of his Christian life. Name your sins. Name your sins. I, I want you to go there. Well, that's repentance, isn't it? Yeah. And, uh, you know, sin is a condition of the heart, the Bible person believes, but it's also a word we use to describe acts that are going on all the time. And my understanding of, of the New Testament is those sins need to be named. Uh, when the Holy Spirit brings conviction, we, we can't bat it around and try to play it down so it doesn't, it isn't real anymore. We need to say it. So name your sins um, at the cross. Apparently Jesus has promised to bring forgiveness and mercy to confess sins. Pray for the world. Gargantuan idea. Um, Richard John Newhouse um, once described standing at the door of the Pope's private chapel in Rome. He was going to be a guest at the Mass that morning, and the door opened, and he said, I looked in, and there was the Pope at the altar with his crozier pressed across his cheek, and he was fervent in praying. And Newhouse said to himself, interesting, we Protestants give our pastors offices to work out. The Catholic Church gives the Pope a chapel. And uh, I, I think about that. The Pope was in the chapel, and when Newhouse said, what's he doing? They said, he's praying for the world. I haven't done much of that. Hmm. But um, the world needs praying for. And then things that are bigger than me. Yeah, what is bigger than you at 80? Eternity. 
heaven. Um, it better be part of my time at the cross to um, somehow express that I, I, uh, I am looking forward to heaven. I'm imagining what heaven might be. I think it's going to have a lot of beauty. I think there's going to be a lot of artistic activity there. Um, I think the community, the fellowship is going to be unbelievable. And uh, we'll be able to sit and linger and talk like you and I have talked endlessly and not feel any fatigue. And we will go away with our minds blown by what we created in the conversation. That's bigger than me. And um, so I think about those things. Cynic, you know, in this book, Infinite Game, talks about the infinite organization and the infinite leader. And what he's simply, simply saying is, you don't build a good organization if it's not bigger than you are. And, uh, you know, you see that CEOs and presidents and athletes um, who can't think beyond themselves. So that's why that's there. Gordon, this has been so rich. Thank you. I've loved it. You've, you've given me a chance to trace, you know, all my own thoughts about some of this stuff. And there's been a few places where I've said to myself, that's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think is crazy? <laughs> I don't know now, but I'll write you and let you know. <laughs> <laughs> let me know. Uh, I mean, after two and a half hours, is there anything else you would want to share? It's been so rich. No, I, th I think my mind is is reaching the empty part of the tank. <laughs> well, it's been rich to the end. Gordon, just thank you so much for being with us today. You are a gift to me. You are a gift to just so many leaders. And I'm so grateful for this huge investment of time, wisdom, energy, prayer, insight. And I'm so grateful that God has preserved you and Gail uh, into these moments for all of us. And I, I can't let you say those things without turning it around and saying, you have been a wonderful gift to a lot of thousands and thousands and thousands of people. So thank you for what you do. Oh, Gordon, thank you. All the profiteering because of it. Every once in a while, you feel like you have done an episode where you can just, you know, hang things up and go, okay, I think, I think I did what I was called to do. And this feels like one of those episodes. Hey, we're going to continue this podcast, but like if this was it... Wow, what a legacy. Gordon, thank you. I know that won't be our last conversation and I'm so grateful. And man, our world needs more voices like Gordon's, does it not? And uh, actually in the What I'm Thinking About segment at the end, I'm gonna talk about uh, some of the principles. Like if, if you notice how many great leaders have passed away, uh, people that we admire and respect, everyone from J.I. Packer to Eugene Peterson to Ravi Zacharias to Dallas Willard to others, it's like, who's going to replace them? So I have some thoughts on that, particularly for young leaders. Uh, what are the qualities and characteristics that make people in that category, including Gordon McDonald, uh, so valued? So I'll, I'll be sharing that in a moment. In the meantime, if you want transcripts, you can go to kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 366. Yes, we did transcribe all two and a half hours of the episode. Uh, I like to, to read that stuff. And we have show notes with some quotes too. And uh, I, I kind of joked earlier that, hey, nobody looks at the show notes. Well, that's changed. Lots of you are looking at the show notes now. And of course, that's all available free. 
Uh, we have a new episode coming up next time. And uh, I'll tell you, I love being able to do this with you. But on the next episode, here's who we've got. We've got Jim Tomberlin and Warren Bird, and we are going to talk about mergers and multi-site and all of that and why church attendance might be a little bit lower post-COVID. Here's an excerpt. And by the way, 61% of those churches are in the maintenance mode. Uh, I mean, mm. uh, in addition. So that's, that's like about 85% of churches in America before COVID were in maintenance, preservation, or life support. That 25% of maintenance and, li- and or, uh, preservation and life support, uh, COVID will accelerate their decline unless they turn right. themselves around. So that's coming up next time on the podcast. We also have ahead of us, for those of you, wherever you're listening, if you subscribe, you're going to hear from Chris Hogan. Uh, you'll hear from Lecrae, Brad Lominick, Harris III, Ann Graham Lotz, Lisa Turkers, Beth Moore is coming on the podcast, which I'm really excited about. Scott Sauls and Sarah Anderson, Angela Santomero, who created Blues Clues, among other things. And, um, well, a lot of others. So super excited for that. We got a great fall lined up. It's just about time for what I'm thinking about. And this is brought to you by ProMedia Fire. Book your free digital strategy session at promediafire.com forward slash church growth and by Red Letter Challenge. Get 10 to 40% off a done for you turnkey 40-day study that dives into the words of Jesus at redletterchallenge.com forward slash carry. So here's what I'm thinking about. You know, when Eugene Peterson died, I was really rocked. I had an interview with him. We'll link to that in the show notes as well. Uh, It was short, but it was powerful. And he really spoke into my life. And I thought, wow, they just don't make them like that anymore. And um, I got thinking about what what are the qualities and characteristics of people like Gordon or people like Eugene Peterson that they can live a legacy, make make some mistakes along the way, and, and yet have so much wisdom to offer. And we live in what feels like a really different era. So Uh, For a voice, I think, to endure, to have real significance, it needs depth, not just breadth. And we live mostly in an age of breadth where everybody is trying to find followers and get a bigger platform. Uh, A lot of leaders that you admire and that I admire, I think they, they live in the depths and that's where their legacy comes from. So a few things to think about if you're forming, you know, the kind of life or character that will produce an outcome like a Gordon McDonald. Principle one, your input should always exceed your output. Uh, For most of Gordon's life, you know, you had to go to a publisher, have a major outlet where you published your material. And now you have the internet, you have your phone. So you can jump on Reels or TikTok or Instagram or, you know, a blog like I do or podcast. It's pretty easy to do output these days. And I have to really make sure that my input sources are strong. And that's, that includes spiritual, but also intellectual. Um, you know, be a reader, be a listener, be a cross-disciplinary learner. Because in the financial realm, when your output exceeds your input, you go bankrupt. And I think intellectually, emotionally, and spiritually, it's kind of the same. And uh, a lot of people are living on output, but not on input. So ask yourself, what are my inputs? Spiritually, emotionally, uh, intellectually. And, uh, and, and try to make sure that they outpace your outputs. Okay, principle number two, your private walk needs to be far deeper than your public talk. Again, super easy. I follow people on Instagram. They're always talking. I do a lot of talking. But what's your private walk like? And when there's a gap between your private walk and your public talk, uh, you need to address that. Uh, I look at Jesus, for example. He had no public life for 30 years. He simply prepared for three decades, Uh, did his ministry for three years, 
and we change the world. That's a 10 to 1 ratio of preparation over accomplishment. If you want your public talk to truly resonate, deepen your private walk. So I think that's important. Number three, make the work the reward. We live in a world where everyone wants instant gratification, instant results, and we're just motivated by reward. Well, I think you need to have a work that outpaces the reward. To many leaders, the fame, the sale of a startup to, uh, you know, whatever, or 70 bajillion downloads on your podcast, whatever, uh, people want to be famous. And you may find your fame for a few minutes here or there, but for any legacy that lasts, just know this, the work has to be the reward. So ask yourself this question, okay? What happens if I get a million downloads? What happens if my bank account is bigger than I ever thought it would be? Would you continue the work? And if the answer is yes, then the work is probably your reward because you're going to do it whether your bank account is small or whether you have 10 downloads. You're like, no, this is really meaningful work. And uh, I, I think that's something like for me that has to motivate me. Yeah, we've got you know record downloads on the podcast and everything, but I actually really enjoy the work. And I want to do it. And as long as it serves the audience and honors God, I want to keep doing it. So make the work the reward. We, we could go way down the rabbit hole on that one. But, and, and again, if, if the success doesn't come, just know this, that uh, you already got your reward because you're doing the work, right? You're doing work that matters, that, that matters. How about number four? Don't offer your opinion on everything. Now, um, <laughs> You know, sometimes people say, well, I got to comment on this and I got to comment on that and I got to comment on this. In my interview with Eugene Peterson a few years ago, he said, I don't read the newspaper much. I can't find much about God and Jesus in them. I thought that was really interesting. And what he was doing was trying to figure out what the scripture would speak into the violence in the 1960s and the race riots and the tension. And uh, he said one of the most meaningful things uh, a lot of people in his congregation were upset about the race riots in Baltimore in 1968. And Eugene Peterson said this. He said, during the 1968 race riots in Baltimore, people were worried about what was happening in the city. I was worried about what was happening in people. I thought, bingo, bingo, that makes sense. No, um, giants will speak out on major issues. You can think about Bonhoeffer in the Second World War or Christine Kane or others on human trafficking. Uh, but mostly they're not reacting. They're actually taking a stand and following a different track. So you don't have to express an opinion on everything. Rather, spend more time forming an opinion that actually makes sense. And to that end, uh, next idea is to focus on the timeless, not the timely. A timely word is almost always a timeless word. So if you can anchor your thinking, your belief, your spirituality to things that are deeply eternal they're going to outlive you. You know, C.S. Lewis is being read 60 years after he died because he speaks into the human condition and eternity in a way that resonates well into a world he never lived in. So a, a word that makes the best sense of the times always roots itself in what's timeless. So focus on that. Uh, you've heard me say this before. I say it a lot, but just work twice as hard on your character as you do on your competency. Your character ultimately is the lid on your career, Competency gets you in the room, but character keeps you in the room. And every once in a while, you know, you, you may have some things you're not particularly proud of, and, and that's okay. Recover, repent, uh, redo. In that first interview with Gordon McDonald, I talked about recovery from failure. How do you do that? He's got some of the best stuff I've ever read on that subject in his book, Rebuilding Your Broken World. 
And we cover some of that in the first interview, so I'll link to that. And then, and then finally, just choose purpose over platform. I hear from young leaders all the time who are like, I want to build a platform, I want to build a platform. Yeah, that's great. How about just finding a great purpose? And then maybe that'll get you noticed, maybe not. Don't worry, just find a really good purpose and um, <laughs> I think you'll be a lot better off. So those are some thoughts, man. I, I bet you we're pushing the three-hour mark at this point. Yeah. Okay, Joe Rogan, we're coming for you. Anyway, hey, thanks so much for listening, guys. We're back. We're going to do this with perhaps a shorter episode next time, but I hope you have found this one as rich as I have. It's a privilege to have these conversations. It's a privilege to be able to learn from people like Gordon McDonald. And I hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.